Welcome back to the Lion Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversation is with my longtime friend, Paul Saladino, Dr. Paul Saladino. He is known widely on the internet as the Carnivore MD. Paul is a very polarizing figure in the world, uh, and he is also very intelligent. He is a medical doctor. Uh, he's studied all sorts of different forms of medicine throughout his past and his present, and uh, he's a really, truly inspirational person. There's a lot to learn from Paul, and he ruffles some feathers, which I value, and we do that in this. He ruffles my feathers several times in the conversation, tries to uh, debase my, my beloved olive oil, which is problematic for me. We also get into endocrine disrupting chemicals, which exist prolifically throughout our homes. Deodorants, perfumes, uh, detergents, flame retardants, the PFAs on pans. What the heck is a PFA in the first place? They're known as forever chemicals. Get into uh, the what's happening with our sexuality, the potential feminization of the human race. Uh, get into sperm motility, sperm count, uh, penis length, penis girth, penis size of all varieties, how the chemicals in our environment may or may not be affecting our genitalia. This conversation is interesting. It is deep. It is hilarious. And I think you guys are going to have a great time. Thank you so much for subscribing so you get each week's episodes. Thank you for doing you. Thanks for sharing this with your friends. And also be sure to check out the Align Podcast YouTube channel and subscribe over there to get each week's instructional videos as well as clips from this podcast. That is Align Podcast on the YouTube. All right, here we go with my guy, Dr. Paul Saladino. Something I wanted to talk to you about was some of the confusion that I personally have around cholesterol, uh, fatty plaque deposits in arteries. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a, an interesting book, there's a textbook and Katie Bowman talks about this as well. She has a book called move your DNA. And there's a textbook called the physics of cerebrovascular diseases, biophysical mechanisms of development, diagnosis and therapy. Okay. And it gets into um, the like the, the the physics of plaque buildup in your arteries, as opposed to it just being a chemical conversation okay. within like food uh -huh. and cholesterol and fat and LDL and HDL, also the the effect of uh, blood circulating through your vascular system, your your arteries, and the when it wraps around certain angles, it will bump into the sides of the walls, creating like wounding. Yep. And then that plaque is almost like a scab. Yes. So this is a different perspective than I think is common to anyone. What the hell is plaque? What is <laughs> cholesterol? What is fat? Where are we confused in this conversation? What are we what are we getting right? It's a it's a complicated topic, right? So you're looking at probably the span of anything from advanced high school biology to graduate level molecular biology to fully understand the cholesterol conversation. And if if somebody isn't a graduate level molecular biologist or a graduate level physiologist or trained at the level of a physician or something, it's, it's hard to understand the conversation. So there's a lot of words that you start with. Mm. You start with cholesterol, which is the word that means <clears throat> this steroid backbone molecule that is the basis of our steroid hormones. So testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, pregnenolone, aldosterone, all of these hormones are steroid hormones and they're all based on this cholesterol backbone. 
So your body makes cholesterol. Your liver makes 1,200, 1,500 milligrams of cholesterol a day because it's essential for human life. And that's cholesterol. Now, we think of, quote, cholesterol, and that colloquialism generally refers to LDL cholesterol, which is, or HDL cholesterol, which is really a misnomer when you think about it because LDL is an acronym for low-density lipoprotein or high-density lipoprotein. And so now you have another complication. What's a lipoprotein? A lipoprotein is lipids and protein. And so you have a sphere. It's a single phospholipid monolayer sphere. It's basically a balloon full of cholesterol backbone molecules, so cholesterol molecules and triglycerides. And that's what we call low-density lipoprotein, quote, cholesterol. So you have different colloquialisms, different ways of referring to cholesterol. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, yeah. To the degree that I'm capable of processing. Well, I think you're, you're, you got it, right? You get it. So beyond that, our body uses cholesterol to make these steroid hormones. It also uses cholesterol in the cell membranes to keep the cell membranes fluid. So this is, it's pretty fascinating when you think about every cell in your body has a lipid bilayer. These are phospholipids and they're all moving. And it's just, it's almost like a trampoline park in your body. Just every single cell has a trampoline park and the, 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 tension on those trampolines has to do with what you put in the membranes of those cells. So if you put more cholesterol or less cholesterol, it changes the, the fluidity of the membranes. Or if you put more saturated fats or less polyunsaturated fats or more saturated, less, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so what's interesting is that there is this theory, which is quite compelling regarding our cell membranes called the homeoviscous model of cell membranes. And it's a fancy word that basically means that your body in order to function properly, physiologically needs to keep those trampolines at a certain level of tension. Those cell membranes need to have the just perfect amount of fluidity. If they're too tight, they're going to crack. If they're too loose, they're just going to bleb apart, right? And so if you eat more or less of certain fats, your body will put more or less cholesterol in the membranes to anchor it or to make it less rigid. And so this theory, the homeoviscus theory, suggests that when you eat more polyunsaturated fat, these omega-6 polyunsaturated fats and seed oils, your body has to make adjustments in the cell membrane and that leads to lower levels of LDL cholesterol in your blood. Because I think that what people get generally wrapped around the axle with, with cholesterol, quote cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, is that some fats raise it and some fats lower it. But the fats that raise it are fats that you and I may believe to be healthy, like saturated fats from butter or milk or eggs or meat, yeah. which we've talked about in previous podcasts, I believe are associated with human health. But how can that be when they raise LDL cholesterol. Well, maybe this level of LDL cholesterol is not the only metric to be looking at for your cardiovascular health. And maybe it's not even a singly good metric to be looking at for your cardiovascular health. Maybe there are much more nuanced ways to think about this because the main reason that the American Heart Association thinks that polyunsaturated fatty acids found in canola, corn oil, peanut oil, soybean oil, grapeseed oil, what else? Cottonseed oil, whatever, are good for you is because they lower your LDL cholesterol. Mm. But the homeoviscous model, which is pretty darn interesting and compelling, posits that when you eat those polyunsaturated fats, your body has to make the membranes essentially more stiff because those polyunsaturated fatty acids make the membranes too fluid. And in order to make the membranes more stiff, your LDL cholesterol drops because some of that cholesterol is moving, right? And so it's not necessarily pathologic that your LDL cholesterol would go up when you eat saturated fat. Your body's just regulating the fluidity of the membranes. But because of the way we think about research in medicine, we get 
I think we get distracted. We get misled into thinking that all increases in LDL cholesterol, which is sometimes referred to as ApoB or ApoB containing lipoproteins. And again, we took another step in complexity here. There are multiple lipoproteins beyond LDL that contain ApoB, which is a lipoprotein. So ApoB 100 or ApoB 48, not super important to understand that, but ApoB and LDL at the level that we're talking about right now, essentially synonymous. So your ApoB goes up, your LDL goes up when you eat saturated fat, but is that pathological? I would say no, that's not pathological. That's just your body responding to the changes in your fat intake to keep the membranes fluid. Now, you asked me how does plaque form or what is plaque? That's within the arterial wall of your body. So if you take this tube of your artery and you cut it sideways and you look down the tube, you'll see that the walls of the tube are very complex structures. They have an a inner layer, which is where the blood is, that faces the blood called the endothelium. They have a subendothelial space. They have an intimal layer. They have a mucosal layer with some actually smooth muscle on the outside of the artery because it contracts and expands. And so underneath the intima, so underneath or between the endothelium and the intima, or in that space, this subintimal, subendothelial space is where a plaque forms. But what is a plaque? It's not just LDL cholesterol. It's LDL cholesterol and ApoB-containing lipoproteins that have been eaten, engulfed by macrophages. So you have to have immune cells. There are immune cells that live in your arterial walls and they eat this LDL. Why do they eat the LDL? They eat the LDL because the LDL looks like a bacteria at a high level. It looks foreign. Because we've, there are clear studies that show if you incubate a macrophage, this is an immune cell in your body, with native LDL, that is LDL that is not oxidized. So now we introduce another term. Oxidation is the gain. Oxidation is technically the loss of electrons. Reduction is the gain of electrons. So your oxidation we think of connected with free radicals. You can, at a high level, you can think of oxidation as some sort of damage at a chemical level. So if the LDL particle is damaged, if it's lost electrons, if it's become oxidized, then you have molecules on the surface of that LDL molecule, that LDL particle, low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, a balloon-carrying cholesterol and triglycerides that are oxidized. They have a free electron. They look different. And in fact, some of the proteins on the outside of the LDL, even the ApoB100 protein, which is sort of identifying it as low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, can look different and they can activate the macrophages to engulf them because they think they're foreign. The macrophages have a series of receptors, like the scavenger receptor that sort of lock onto these molecules on the outside of LDL and say, hey, you don't look like I'm used to seeing you. I'm going to eat you because you could be foreign. So the takeaway here is that macrophages only engulf LDL when it's oxidized. It's not when it's native. So we don't fully understand how LDL guts from the bloodstream to inside of the arterial wall. There's debates and theories whether it comes from the outside of the artery through something called the vasovasorum, which is the blood supply to the muscular layer outside the artery, or it comes through the endothelium. But what we know is that the LDL particle is much bigger than any space between the endothelial cells. So it's probably moving through that space in an active way. And maybe the LDL molecule is being brought into the subendothelial space within an artery to provide repair elements, to provide nutrients, to provide this cholesterol and triglycerides, because that's how you make cell membranes. So what you said earlier, if we tie it back to the bifurcations in arteries, where fluid moves quickly, there is more turbulence, and that can denude the endothelium. So that 
probably happens in all healthy people, and you're going to have branch points in your arteries. And so where that happens, you get turbulence, and that causes denudation of these endothelial cells, and the body has to repair that. So one theory, which I find particularly compelling, is that LDL is moving to those places to deliver nutrients, to repair the cells that are there, to repair the endothelium. And that's probably normal. So everyone probably gets some degree of damage to the endothelium at these arterial bifurcations due to increased pressure, and LDL has to go there to repair it. And so there is going to be LDL in those spaces. Now, how much of that LDL is oxidized and how much of that LDL ends up getting engulfed by these macrophages and how that healing process goes is really what we're talking about with a plaque. What would differentiate oxidized LDL versus not? Did I miss that part? Um, that's essentially, oxidation is loss of electrons. Mm. So an oxidized LDL has essentially had some of the electrons on some of the molecules on the surface of the LDL stolen. Or it's been involved in some sort of oxidation re reaction. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. Now, let's just pause well, wh for- why does, the, why does that happen though? Um, it's kind of, it's always happening in the human body and the body kind of protects it. There's this balance between oxidation and reduction. And either one of, e too much of either one is bad for the human body. You can have oxidative stress, which is a word that people have probably heard of, but you can also have reductive stress. So it's gain of electron. Like our physiology, the fact that we're having this conversation is this elegant balance of the movement of electrons. It's all quantum at some level, right? But this is actually less than quantum or larger than quantum. It's more macro than quantum because we're looking at a particle that we can measure the size of, right? LDL particles are 20 to 23 nanometers in size. It's an actual, it's not like an electron. It's a much bigger molecule. It's a much bigger collection of proteins and phospholipids and cholesterol and triglycerides than the size of an electron. But it's the movement of electrons that determine how the outside of that LDL particle looks and whether it's an oxidized LDL particle or it's a native LDL particle. Mm. And going back to our seed oil conversation, this is a really important connection to make. It's very, very clear from the literature, and this is why I get so frustrated at the American Heart Association and their myopia when it comes to seed oils and LDL cholesterol. If you feed someone more seed oils, so we talked, I don't know if it was gonna be recorded or not, but before the podcast, possibly in the podcast, we were talking about the fact that soybean oil may carry the American Heart Association seal of approval. It's an, a seal that you can actually buy that the American Heart Association makes millions of dollars from. And if, you, if I feed you soybean oil, your LDL particle count overall number will go down, but your, more of those LDL will become oxidized. This is something we know very, very clearly. And so you'll have more oxidized LDL, which is a little difficult to measure, but it is measurable in humans. And there's another metric, which is quite technical, it's called LP little a, which is pretty direct reflection of the oxidation status of your lipoprotein particles. Does all that make sense so far? Yes, <laughs> to the best of my, my ability, yes. I, I, I am very impressed with your ability to break down very complex topics in a digestible way. I am actually able to track and follow, which I'm almost impressed with combination impressed with myself that I'm able to track and very impressed with your ability to uh, to present it in a translatable way. I'll try and zoom out. Way. Yeah, I'll try and zoom out and summarize. So LDL is a bus. It's made by the liver and it transports molecules around the human body that are useful for our cells. It's a bus. It's a bus. The passengers on the bus are cholesterol and triglycerides. And there are other buses that move from the periphery of your body back to the liver, and those are sometimes called HDL cholesterol. So there's different lipoproteins doing different bus routes in the human body. Generally speaking, again, I'm trying to just make it very simple. 
I like this. Okay. (laughs) So there's buses moving around. And and sometimes people actually get off one bus and go to the other bus. You know, HDL may get some things from LDL and the HDL particle gets bigger, but basically these are bus routes in the human body. The central bus station is the liver, right? So the number of buses in the circulation, the number of buses on the bus routes has to do with how the periphery is asking the liver for nutrients to make cell membranes. So because of the fluidity of the cell membranes potentially, or because of the needs of the periphery, and by the periphery, I mean every cell of your body outside of the liver, because your bloodstream is moving to your toes, to your kneecap, to your arteries, to your vessels, to uh, to your ligaments, to your muscles, to other organs, to your brain. So the, there's this incredibly complex bus route, right? Of the, all these LDL particles going out, they're coming back, they're changing the particles within them. The HDL particles are moving back to the liver. This is, it's just a big complex New York City bus route. And the L, number of LDL particles in circulation, I think is not the thing to focus on. It's the number of broken buses or the number of buses that have bad actors on them, or I'm trying to think as if we extend this analogy, like the number of buses that are likely to break down or the number of buses that are likely to explode perhaps because they have a fuel leak or something going very badly with them. Buses that function normally in the bus routes seem to be totally great for humans. And in fact, there are lots of studies that in humans, especially in humans above 60 years old, the more of these LDL buses you have, the longer you live. And, and the lessier rate of many chronic diseases, because we know that these LDL particles are not just involved in these bus routes, they're also involved in the immune system. So LDL cholesterol is an essential carrier, an essential participant in so many physiologic functions of the human body, but it gets mislabeled. It's really so myopic to just say that LDL cholesterol equals bad. Yeah. And so what we were talking about earlier is this idea that oxidized LDL is probably the main problem. And that's a much better predictor of how many of these plaques, how much of this repair that's going on in your arteries is going to lead to actually, let's just say long-term projects that are likely to be bad. Because when you, I think all of us probably get some degree of a fatty streak, which is the first thing that happens when LDL goes into an arterial wall and probably some of that LDL gets oxidized because a little bit gets oxidized. But does that fatty streak progress to an atheroma, progress to a plaque, progress to think, you know, some connect, some collection of junk within the arterial wall that is likely to rupture? It's the rupture of those plaques that causes problems for humans. The formation of the plaque isn't really a big deal unless it gets to be such a huge plaque that it completely occludes the artery. But the majority of the time, that plaque bursts before it becomes that big. It's like a big zit in your arterial wall. Nobody wants a zit, but you definitely don't want a big zit in your arterial wall. And that zit can rupture. And when it ruptures, it's going to release inflammatory mediators. It can release little pieces of the arterial wall, which can be problematic downstream in the artery. But if the, if the zit ruptures, there's going to be a clot. And that's generally what happens when people have heart attacks. But how did it get from something that was probably first intended as a repair in the artery to a clot? Something had to go wrong in that healing. And I think this is where diseases like diabetes also known as insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction, give us a clue. I think all of us are getting bumps and scrapes and bruises like we do on our knees or our toes or our hands if we're out in the world inside of our arteries because of this turbulent movement of fluid at these bifurcations. But those of us who are metabolically healthy can heal those just fine. But what do we know about diabetics? They can get a little cut on their foot 
and you have to amputate the whole leg because their wound healing is impaired. So this is the connection between metabolic dysfunction and impaired wound healing. And that to me is, that's the most important connection to make here intellectually, because then you start to understand, oh, maybe we all get these scrapes on the inside of our arteries, but when you become metabolically unwell, and we can talk about what does that, you can't repair it properly. And that's how something that should just be a little scab that repairs inside your arteries becomes a big zit that can rupture. Does yeah, that make sense? It does. So I wonder in relation to um, that, like the, the physics of, of plaque, Yeah, I, it feels to me as we're talking about, or as you're talking about this and the things that I read and, and, and hear about, it feels a little bit almost like disembodied in a way. It feels very like biochemical and, and abstract but it lacks a kinesthetic mechanical component to it mm -hmm. in, in my experience of, of like hearing it. I'm trying to place myself into this. And But where does movement come into the conversation of plaque? And could a person sitting in the same, you know, 90 degree angle at every joint throughout the day and being maybe having forward head posture and maybe having just different versions of impingement and collapse throughout the body have some effect on those buses and that circulation of that blood to potentially be propagating or, or, or setting yourself up for some of that, that plaque you build up? It, possibly. I hadn't thought about it that way in the past. I'd have to dig into it a little more. I think what we know is that, hey, when you're moving, you're getting better blood flow. Mm -hmm. And if you're moving, you're creating work in the muscles, which we know is beneficial for humans. If you're just mm -hmm. sitting around, I mean, there's some level of movement that is probably essential for a baseline level of metabolic health. Yeah, And I think there's some level at which below, there's a level below which if you're not moving, how can you actually tell the muscles to take up glucose and be a metabolically healthy human? Yeah, but that concept of overall metabolic health, that has to do with food, but it also has to do with lifestyle. We know that sleep deprivation affects it. We know that sedentary lives affect it. And so on the good side, yeah, some movement, some blood flow associated with that movement is certainly going to enhance, enable, um, propagate this metabolic health overall for humans. Yeah. That's critical. Yeah. So you went to Tanzania and you spent some time with the Hatsa people. It's something yeah. that's very high on my list. Yeah, and, it's and awesome. There, there was a some research that I'm, I think you're probably familiar with that came from the University of Southern California where they followed uh, Hatsa tribes people and they attached some type of device to be able to measure their movement throughout the day. They found that their average resting time from what I read was about the same as industrialized populations. It was like, I think the specific number was 9.82 hours per day. Mm-hmm. It was just the the way in which they rested was completely different. And so I feel like I think there's more to the movement conversation in Western cultures, health and well-being. And I think that we are very abstract and it is very biochemical. And the model in which we we embody ourselves, I think, is so different than, quote unquote, healthy populations. Mm -hmm. you know, so I, I, what do you think about the movement of Hatsa people? Is there could there be any association to things like like plaque buildup and arteries and Things, things, things of the like. Definitely. I mean, I think first about their diet, which is obviously no processed food, no seed oils and yeah. a lot of animal fat, and they don't have cardiovascular disease, but you're right. They don't sit in chairs. They had like little logs on the ground. They might be in like a semi squatting position. And they had, when I was hanging out with them, they put this deer skin on the ground and everybody just sits Indian style on the deer skin, or they just lay on a rock 
You think, mm -hmm. like, think what does yoga do to the body? Like the muscles that we're aware of, if you stretch open your pecs each day, you do a doorway stretch, whatever it is, it changes the architecture of your shoulder. Girdle. Yeah. If you hang for 90 seconds a day, it changes the architecture of your shoulder girdle. Yeah. What happens to the architecture of your blood vessels and your arteries through your your mechanical experience in, in your day-to-day -day life? It's gotta be different. It's gotta be different. It's gotta be different. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's gotta be different. Yeah. Going back to the the plaque conversation at the risk of being, you know, too technical for people, we can move on to something else. No, it's okay. There's you do not see atherosclerosis, plaque formation in veins. You only see it in arteries in the native circulation. And this is in an unhealthy person. Like a diabetic person is much more predisposed to get atherosclerosis, plaque formation, cardiovascular disease. These are all synonyms. They get it in the arteries. They don't get it in the veins. Why is that? Because the pressure in the veins is so much lower. Yeah. We don't get the turbulence at the bifurcations in the veins. So the endothelium is not being damaged. So this is a really, really important point to understand that it is the damage to the endothelium that is the inciting factor. That is the proximate event. That is the first step in atherosclerosis. I, I, and I really think this is important to emphasize because many in the health space would argue that ApoB or LDL is the first step in atherosclerosis. And that doesn't make any sense to me. And I think if you look at the data, it's absolutely not supported. To say that LDL is the first step in atherosclerosis, which is essentially the conversation that more LDL equals more atherosclerosis, is just ludicrous to me. It's clearly endothelial damage, and then how much of your LDL is oxidized and how well do you repair it? And that completely changes the equation because then you say, well, I'm metabolically healthy. Does it matter if my LDL cholesterol is 160 milligrams per deciliter? I would say probably not. If you're fasting insulin, which is perhaps the easiest, best metric of your metabolic health, is good, which in my opinion would be less than five micro IU per ml. And those are technical numbers, but I'll just give them to people so they have that valuable information. I want to take a moment and share the morning ritual that I've stuck with for the last year. That is crawling out of bed, walking to the kitchen and pouring myself a glass of AG1. I learned about this originally from Dr. Andrew Huberman. He's been drinking this stuff for the last decade or so. And I am also a massive fan of the product. Why I like it is it blends several different supplements that I would take anyway. So it is a probiotic and prebiotic as well as a multivitamin and also a mineral supplement. It is the highest sourced ingredients. It tastes absolutely delicious. I notice a measurable change in my energy and my mood and it is a gratifying sensation to know that I'm starting the day by covering my micronutrient baselines. So if you want to take ownership of your health, today is a great time to start. Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D as well as five free travel packs with your first purchase. To get this, all you got to do is go to athleticgreens.com slash align. That's A-T-H-L-E-T-I-C-G-R-E-E-N-S.com slash align. I'm incredibly confident you guys are going to love this stuff. Go check it out, athleticgreens.com slash align. If people want to take control of their cholesterol and the, the potential plaque building up in their arteries, is what, what would be the, the top most valuable thing people could do for themselves? I believe it's getting rid of seed oils. I think that that is the single most important thing. Again, I see it through the lens of biochemistry and nutrition. It's, it's, there's no one single thing, right? You need to sleep well. You need to not be super stressed. You need to get nutrients in your food. But if you had to do one thing, if you completely eliminated seed oils from your diet, think about the number of foods that you would eliminate the number of ultra-processed things you would eliminate. And that, I think, would be the single greatest 
thing you could do in your diet to improve your cardiovascular, your, that would be the single greatest thing you could do in your diet to improve your cardiovascular fitness and lower your cardiovascular risk long-term. Why is it that the American Medical Association is a proponent of seed oils? Because they lower LDL, right? So they're LDL myopic. And we talked about the fact that you, they will lower LDL, but they will raise oxidized LDL and they'll raise LP little a. So this I think is so central. <laughs> this is such a crux of our nutritional understanding as humans that if, if CNN, if Fox News, if mainstream media began to understand that things that raise your cholesterol may not be bad for you and that it's not cholesterol that we should be thinking about, it's metabolic health, yeah. it would completely change the landscape of our nutritional choices as humans. And nobody would be able to escape it. But for now, we're just stuck in this paradigm because anything that raises LDL is bad. Even though we know that if you eat saturated fat, your LDL might go up, not in everyone, but in some people, it might go up 20%. But your oxidized LDL and your LP little a go down. And generally, we see people get more metabolically healthy. Their fasting insulin goes down. So this is the, this is the disconnect for me. It's crazy. And just to be slightly conspiratorial, and then we can move on. Please. <laughs> I think this is probably due to the fact that statins are a multi-billion dollar industry. Yeah. And if lowering your LDL cholesterol is not the ultimate goal, then you have to really answer for all of the harm that statins are doing to people. And I recently had a conversation on my podcast, which is called Fundamental Health, with a cardiologist, Asim Malhotra, and we were talking about the statin industry and how vile it is. And the fact that so many people get side effects from statins, but they are downplayed and really not accurately reported to the public. And so there's, it's all this collusion, I think. And you look at who funds the news media, it's pharma. <laughs> So you must have a news media paradigm that cholesterol is bad if pharma is funding the news media. Because if cholesterol isn't bad and it's okay for your cholesterol to go up, why the fuck are you taking Lipitor? Mm. And why the fuck aren't you focusing on your metabolic health? Yeah. Right? It's not because that's what people want and that's what the pharmaceutical companies want to give them in this multi-billion dollar industry is you don't have to change anything about your diet. You can just take this and it'll get rid of LDL, it'll lower your LDL and you'll be safe. No way. That's complete bullshit. Yeah, it feels like there's like a some degree of, uh, this is probably a, a bit excessive of a, or a little dramatic of a word, but it's some version of slavery in a sense of the, for you to live in a baseline homeostatic way, you need to buy this product. You need this pharmaceutical drug, you need this statin, you need something outside yeah. of just what comes naturally in your backyard. Like if, if a person's in that space, like, and, and I, there's a lot of, there's a lot of circumstances, a lot of different people, but a, a model of, of, of culture and advertising where it's, it's in order to be homeostatic, you need to buy this product. That feels like a problem. There's this subtle, not so subtle propaganda that you learn in medical school that you're in, that you're actually, I would say programmed within medical school that humans are broken mm. and that we cannot fix ourselves. Mm. And that to me, that's probably why I do the work I do. That's, that's a huge part of my why, because I want people to understand that that's completely wrong. That's so much of what we do, the way we move, the way we see the sun, the way we sleep and what we eat, that is the best medicine. That sounds cliche, but it's so damn true. Yeah. And if you are empowered to understand that you can fix your rheumatoid arthritis, your eczema, your psoriasis, your depression, your anxiety, your insomnia, your infertility, your menstrual irregularities, your painful periods, your PMS, then what do you need a pharmaceutical for? And what do you need mainstream medicine for? 
Like that, that is so powerful, but it's so confusing to people. How do we get there? What's wrong? What choices are we making to get there? And that's why it's so interesting for me and feels so important to do the work to offer people, hey, if you're not, if what you're doing is not working, there are different ways to think about this, which is kind of the broader conversation about what foods are healthy for humans. Yeah. So, but that's a really important thing for people to understand that the power to change, the power to heal from these chronic illnesses, it's ours. We have it but that's not what we're taught in medical school. I mean, I, you know, I'm a doctor and they basically, it's just, you figure out what someone has and then you know what drug to give them. Mm. You don't know how to empower them to say, hey, you have rheumatoid arthritis. Have you thought about an elimination diet? Yeah, That's what I want to change. Yeah, and when you, you know, if if your tool that you possess is a hammer, you know, right. of, of course, like you're just gonna see nails everywhere. And so my tendency is to have, I, I lean more towards compassion and empathy towards like the the evil, deep state overlords because I feel like for the most part people are are doing their best but it would be we we exist within echo chambers and you or I or anybody can be influenced by financial um or have a financial bias like, you know when suddenly yep 10 million dollars is on the table you know, or, or 100 million 140 million dollars or a billion dollars on yeah. the table and you're like oh <laughs> like things get different like I've never experienced that but like I, I get it. I can, yeah. I can, you know, and I have the scientists and the doctors and everyone's, I'm in the echo chamber. Like, this is the way, this is the path forward. And here's that, here's the bag. Like, I, I mean, I, I, I understand how that could be. And then you start to build a world that is kind of influenced by this, this financial bias and it becomes true to you. And you're not actually exposed to the potential, you know, exhaust fumes that are being emitted out the back from that. This is a segue to James Cameron, I think. And there's a quote that I will butcher the paraphrasing of, but it's like, you know, a man's ability to understand or a belief or think about a belief is directly tied to his financial, yeah, you know right. what I mean? What's yeah. the quote there? I don't know, but yeah. That's yeah, a, it's yeah. A, it's difficult for a human to consider an opinion that's opposite of what they believe if believing what they, continuing to believe what they believe is part of their financial future. Yeah, and particularly if they have a family. Yeah. You know, and it's my, my, my kid's college education, you start to build all these stories about yeah. it. It's not necessarily just selfish for the individual. You it's know, challenging, it, it, yeah. It can be actually like, um, you know, they're, they're trying to do the right thing. That's that my, my leaning is, is towards that and how can we kind of course correct simultaneously. I think you're right. With, course correct with compassion. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. which is why it's interesting. And we were talking about this before the podcast when James Cameron makes $140 million investment to a pea protein company, mm. which probably supplies pea protein to multiple plant-based foods. And then recently was quoted as saying something. I've, I've got the quote. <laughs> this is the James, actual... <laughs> James Car Cameron. I always think of testosterone as a toxin that you have to slowly work out of your system. What is James Cameron smoking in this? It's, it's, I mean, well, that's actually quite compatible with plant-based foods, right? The idea that, hey, the reason that in Latin, the word carne or carnal, these have the same root, it's that, yeah, the nutrients in meat, real animal meat and organs, these support male and female hormones. Having a sex drive, a libido, is a healthy thing for humans. And so it's interesting. I just thought that those are so paralleled and ironic that this preeminent director of Avatar and so many movies in the past is investing hundreds of millions of dollars in plant-based protein and also how how appropriate also doesn't believe that testosterone is important for humans well that's about the only way i think you could in, in good conscience believe that plant-based foods are good for humans because they're certainly going to affect your male hormones and female hormones in a negative way so this gets into environmental 
contaminants and perfumes and deodorants and laundry detergents and all of the things. I think there is a balance of becoming um, a bit like maybe orthorexic, you know, and suddenly you see the whole world. It's almost like an autoimmune disease in, in a sense. Yeah. Where it's like the whole world is out to get me. It's like, it's not, you don't, we don't need to go that far. But so how do we maintain feeling safe within ourselves while also being discerning with the products that we're exposing to our skin and our in our olfactory system and all of all of our all of our parts. Yeah. So I heard this recently, you know, knowledge is power, know better, do better. And so it's just every little bit every intentional choice that you or I make in our lives, I think increases the quality of our life. And every part of our lives that is not intentional, that is sort of zombified or programmed or automatic that has the potential to decrease the quality of our life. I mean, this is essentially what meditation is about. Mindfulness is such a buzzword, but I think that the more mindful we are at every level of our lives, the better our lives get. Yeah. And my bias is food, nutrition, exposure to environmental toxins. Your bias, which you've taught me a ton about, is movement. And so the more intentional I can learn from you about how to be intentional to my movement, the better my life gets. The more intentional we can be with our diet and our lifestyle, the better our life gets. The more intentional we are with regard to our chemical warfare around us, the better our life gets. And so just like the food piece is overwhelming to people, if in my work I say, oatmeal is not my favorite breakfast, guys, and people think, oh, shit, how am I going to replace my oatmeal with anything? It can be overwhelming. Any bit of change is overwhelming and is challenging, but it's an opportunity for intentional choices in our life that will increase our quality of life. Yep. The things that we're exposed to in our life, these chemicals seem overwhelming, but any little bit that you do, or if you want to take the whole meal deal and do the whole, as much as you can, great. But any little bit you do will improve your quality of life. It's just something that often goes unrecognized and we're not intentional with it, but it's something I've been thinking about. I mean, are you free balling? You wear an underwear right now. I'm wearing underwear right now. You'll be very dis I actually realized this. <laughs> I, I was, I was, uh, I'm wearing like, uh, jujitsu underwear so they're like they're like polyester oh it's the it's it's the worst from that perspective compression but, shorts yeah but i also believe in you know having the the power of of my the mind <laughs> yeah. manifestation you're mentally visualization you're mentally protecting your testicles yeah, this, the secret <laughs> okay you know, okay testicular secret okay the testicular <laughs> The testicle secret. Hashtag testicle secret. Yeah. There's interesting research. I would not believe this. <laughs> I knew we were going to talk about my underwear. <laughs> I knew it was going to happen. Of course. So this is, I would not believe this. I mostly have bamboo slash cotton underwear, BTW. Fantastic. The ones that I'm wearing right now. What do I got right now? Oh, here they're it goes. These like gold BJJ underwear. Okay. They're great. They, they you know, they're snug. <laughs> <laughs> For so many reasons, I have problems with that. But okay. So there's research. There's. There's there's <laughs> controlled trials. These are interventional trials in humans, in dogs, and in other animals that show that wearing a polyester sling around your balls, and this is they also did the same studies in women for all the ladies listening. Mm. So wearing a polyester sling around your balls decreased sperm counts and affected male hormones negatively over the course of, I think it was a few months that the study went on. And so these are people, they basically had one group that was wearing a cotton sling around their balls yeah. because you have to control for where the testicles are in relation to the body. The testicles do this thing. I mean, any man knows this, but this may be news to all the ladies listening, but the testicles are quite interesting. They're very dynamic. They move up and down to regulate the temperature of the testicles because sperm are, are, are very fragile, um, contrary to popular belief. And if they're too hot, they're 
in, and they're too close to the body, they are, they're not going to be able to mature as well. And if they're too cold, they're not going to be able to mature as well. So the testicles move up and down to what's, control the temperature. What's the muscle that elevates the balls? I'm trying to think of what it is. Right oh now. man, it, I I'm gonna uh, have to. I will know it. Look it up. Look it up. Can Can you look it up, Phil, Filippo? What's Jamie, look it up. Yeah, <laughs> Filippo. What is the What is the the muscle called that elevates? Pubococcygeus is my is my guess. Pubococcygeus. No, that's, that's definitely not what it is. No. It's got a, It's got a, It's a very specific name that's not just like Latin in that way. That it's just the anatomical parts and the motion. Oh, all right. Never mind. We'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. it. It'll, it'll, it'll happen. Um, anyway, yeah. So the, the testicles raise and lower. There's a there's a test we did in medical school for one of the one of the nerves in the sacrum. And I don't remember which lumbar nerve it was or one of the sacral nerves. If you stroke the inside of the thigh, I think it is with like a Q-tip or something when you're doing a physical exam. And this is obviously if you're a doctor doing a physical exam on someone and you think they may have an injury to one of the, I think it's one of the, maybe one of the sacral nerves, could be lumbar, that you can stroke the inside of the thigh, I believe is a test and the testicles should raise because there's a, an innervation loop. Anyway, that's like a reflex. It's like the testicular reflex. That's not all that will raise. <laughs> huh? So anyway, uh, testicles move around. And if you put a cotton sling and you hold the testicles near the body, you could raise the temperature in the testicles. So the, the, the hypothesis that you need to be careful of is that you're it's not just it's not the polyester it's just moving the testicles close to the body with tight underwear like you're wearing from oh, jiu-jitsu I, I, I know that's changing know. that's changing the formation of sperm it's a good thing you're not using it all the time right yeah. and so but when they do this if they use a cotton sling the men don't have any problems with their spermatogenesis or their male hormones but when they do a polyester sling and this also happens in dogs um, you do see negative changes and it takes months for this to improve now this is of course people doing this all the time they're doing this 24 hours a day for, we can actual, I'll send you the study and you can see how many weeks the study was done. But it's interesting to me that polyester underwear in males. Craymaster muscle. Craymaster, yes. I knew it was something yes. something fun. I'm surprised I forgot cream, this one. It's, it's like, like cream master. That's how I remembered that one. I don't know why I lost it in this moment. Yeah. The yeah. cream master. The cream master muscle. It's true. Great, great muscle. My favorite muscle. <laughs> it's a good muscle. Too. Literally, it's the best. It's a good muscle. Um, So, no, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, anyway. If what you put can, if you put oh, polyester yeah. on your balls, it appears to have a negative effect on sperm and hormone production, independent of the fact that you're sucking your balls up near your body, probably due to an electrostatic effect and potentially also due to compounds that are in that polyester. So I recently did a reel on Instagram and TikTok everywhere talking about Lululemon, but Lululemon is not the only company that does this. A lot of these legging companies, the yoga pants legging companies for women, um, will put compounds, PFAs, so parafluoroalkyl compounds. Forever chemicals. Forever chemicals. It should be an echo after I say that. Chemicals. Forever chemicals. Yeah, you know. um, they put forever chemicals in the leggings to make them water resistant. And they put the highest concentration of those forever chemicals in the crotch region because that's the most- uh, wants to wick. That's the most moist place in a man or a woman. And lo and behold, women don't wear a lot of underwear with these leggings because Looks cuter without the underwear. I get it. What do you think about sun in the testicles? There, <laughs> there's a study I think from the 1960s. Yeah. I actually sent this to my buddy Andrew Huberman, yeah. and um, it only looked at androsterone. But when you sun the testicles, androsterone goes up more than if you sun the back or the the chest. So that's that's the only article that I've seen that sunning the testicles may increase testosterone even more. But to be fair, bouts of sun on the chest or the back 
also increased androsterone, which is an, a male androgen or an androgenic precursor hormone. Mm. So I think it's pretty clear that ultraviolet light is good for testosterone. Whether or not you can get more testosterone from sunning your testicles is still up for debate. I would think, again, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I would, I would th intuitively, I'd think you have, is it the lighting cells that produce most of the testosterone in your Answer balls? totally, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would think because that light is passing through the skin, obviously, the, der the, the dermis. Certain wavelengths, yeah. It's getting in there. Yeah. It's stimulating cells. I would, I would think intuitively, not knowing what the hell I'm talking about, it would just make intuitive sense that some sun exposure or infrared light exposure, whatever you got, one of those red lights, whatever you're into, would perhaps cause some stimulation of the cells that, that, that create testosterone. It's quite possible. I think there are studies in animal models sunning rat testicles mm. that increase testosterone. Mm. And this is with red light. I should, I said sunning, but I, it's red light. So yeah, right. red light is a different wavelength from infrared. And I think red light penetrates six to eight centimeters if I'm correct, and ultraviolet light is much less than that. So yeah. that's why people talk about these red lights, which are potentially beneficial, but you'll get red light in the sun. It's just- It's funny how angry people get about this conversation. Well, I'm not angry. No, not you. Just I'm just angry about your fucking jujitsu underwear. No, I, I, knew we were, I knew it was gonna come out. Uh, but I just hear people just like, if we talk about sun in the balls, more, they, get, they get like, you haven't experienced that at all? No. Oh, I've, I've, I've experienced people like, smart people frustrated that that's even a, a common question because they're like it has there's no scientific evidence they get a little flustered about it it's interesting because i'm pretty sure there is evidence regarding rat testicles and yeah. red light yeah. and there's red light in visible light from the sun outdoors and there's a study from the 1960s with androsterone and sunning the testicles so yeah. I don't understand. The anus seems like there's not a lot of evidence about the anus. There's a lot about the anus. No, I don't. I'm not aware of any. What about female genitalia? And then we'll get off of this. I haven't seen anything on female genitalia, I but I think I've that, never actually even seen female genitalia. <laughs> <laughs> that makes two of us. Yeah. And I'm not. Yeah, I mean, I know my cremaster muscle works, but it's too bad it doesn't get enough enough use, right? Endocrine disrupting hormones. <laughs> what about them? What do we need to know? What's, what, endocrine what, disrupting what chemicals, endocrine disrupting chemicals. Sorry, not harmless. Yeah. yeah endocrine right. disruptors in general, problematic, pervasive, ubiquitous. So I remember when I was in, I don't remember what grade it was in, maybe sixth grade or seventh grade. We did these like spelling things and I learned the word ubiquitous and the association with ubiquitous was 7-Eleven. So ubiquitous. So think about as every time you see a 7-Eleven or like a grocery, a convenience store, I want you guys to think about endocrine disrupting chemicals because they are pervasive. They are ubiquitous. They are everywhere. And who knows how much of an impact they have on humans. But again, it's no better, do better. Um, I would like my testicles to work for as long as possible, as well as possible. And unlike James Cameron, right? Mm. I, I want mine to work as well for as long as I can. And to me, that means doing as much as I can intentionally in my life to minimize endocrine disrupting chemicals. So we talked about PFAs a little bit, forever chemicals, cue the echo. Yeah. Those are a known endocrine disruptor. They're in plastics and they're in Lululemon leggings. They're probably in Nike leggings. They're in, they're potentially in the little, you know, those running shorts that have the built-in underwear for dudes or the mm. bathing suits that have the built-in underwear, yeah. potentially in your jujitsu compression shorts, all these things potentially have PFAs okay, change your underwear, change your clothing. That's not too hard. What about your coffee cup? You go to Starbucks, that's a paper coffee cup. It's lined with plastic that can have PFAs in it. And it's, you're putting a hot liquid in it and then you're drinking it. So that's potentially very bad. Yep. You go to Whole Foods in the hot bar or Erewhon in the hot bar 
and you get a sample of their food. And that is a paper container that looks like it's biodegradable, potentially recycled, but it's also lined with plastic, which can have PFAs in it. So anything that's plastic is generally a source of PFA contamination. Why are PFAs bad? It's a, it's a forever chemical. That means it, it just like exists. It's really hard to break down. It's hard to break down in the environment. Yeah. Um, and when we ingest them, they look like hormones in our body. Predominantly, they look like estrogen, wow. which isn't good for men or women because excess estrogens are bad for women. Excess estrogens are bad for men. And if you, when I actually look into this, there is some hard data it's a bad pun that that penises are shrinking and that the anogenital distance is shrinking in men as we evolve as humans, as we move on. And this is potentially contributing. This is potentially connected with these xenoestrogens, not just PFAs. There are many others like phthalates and parabens, which we can talk about. So, but it is scary because we think of this anogenital distance, which is essentially that if you measure the taint, the distance between the testicles in a man and the anus. This is Shana Swan stuff. Yes, this is Shana Swan stuff. Yep. But this anal genital distance changes. So we know that when animals are exposed to PFAs, phthalates, xenoestrogens, this distance shrinks, which is feminization, and it's it's dangerous. So it can also be in the water, which is a great argument for purifying your water, potentially with reverse osmosis, drinking spring water. Because if you go to the environmental working group and you look at Austin, Texas, for instance, there are probably no less than 27 environmental pollutants that are above the level that you'd want in your tap water in Austin, a collection of pharmaceuticals, pesticides, heavy metals, other problematic things, just in every water supply everywhere in the world. It's, you're never going to get a pure water, especially in your tap water. And we know that these pharmaceuticals are persistent. So, you know, people put pills down the toilet, women take birth control, they pee it out. It's like, there's a lot of contamination in our water supply of excess estrogens, excess progesterones from women, other pharmaceuticals, statin drugs, proton pump inhibitors. It's just crazy, the pharmaceuticals that are potentially in our water supply. Mm. So back to endocrine disrupting chemicals. The other one that really gets me, this is perhaps the one that I hate the most, but that's just my subjective experience, are the fragrances, which are usually the phthalates. This is kind of like that word pterodactyl. It has an extra H and a TH and it's a weird spelling word. But phthalates are, they're, they're fragrances. So I in Costa Rica, which is where I spend a lot of time right now, I took my car to the mechanic and I get it back and the whole driver's seat just smells like this guy's cologne. And I sit in the car and then I smell the cologne on my clothes yeah. because there's a fragrance phthalate that's just meant to do that. It's meant to stick on things and cause a smell. You get in the Uber and you see the black ice, um, you know, pine tree in the on the rearview mirror, and the whole car smells like it. What does that mean if some people get a headache from that and some people don't? I get I mean, a gnarly headache. Some people are more chemically sensitive. Even walking through the airport. Oh yeah, like the duty free thing where they like force you to walk through the like the, the just the bullshit. Yeah, you know, and all the perfumes, and all the things. Uh, Ten seconds of that. I walk away and I, I have this lingering headache that I have to like kind of work out of myself. Is that, is that, am I, am I alone in that? No, there's a lot of people with you. I don't think we understand why some people are more chemically sensitive than others. There are many hypotheses out there, underlying toxicity, underlying issues with your detoxification systems. Everyone has different polymorphisms. Everyone has different genetics, the level of their liver and their ability to detoxify things. Maybe you're just not good at detoxifying that. Mm. But what that tells you is that even if you're smelling it, you're ingesting it. Yeah. So when you're in an like elevator, it's like a fart. It, yeah, it's going into your body, right? <laughs> like you're smelling somebody's <laughs> fart. You're literally eating their fart. You're basically eating it's their amazing. ass. You're eating their fart. Like just chop it up and put it on a sandwich. It's, it's a fart sandwich, science, right? Dude. Yeah. So you're 
if you're smelling it, you're ingesting it. And yeah. because it's going into your body and that's, that's scary because you think, oh, I'm at the gas station. I'm smelling gasoline. I'm ingesting gasoline. Yeah. That's problematic for humans. But on the topic of these phthalates and these parabens and these xenoestrogens, I get in the car. It smells like my mechanic. Like I'm ingesting his cologne. I get in the Uber with the Uber driver. He has a black ice pine tree in the window. I get out of the Uber. All my clothes smell like the goddamn black ice thing because it's on the seats and it's on me. This is the problem with these fragrances. Even today at this Airbnb, I'm staying in Austin and this is the level at which people are going to be like, man, this guy, Paul is crazy. The garbage bags are now scented. Oh, they're terrible. And they're so strong. Yeah. And I had to take the garbage out and my hands smell like the garbage bag fragrance. Yeah. So say I take the garbage out and then I go to peel an orange and all this fragrance is on my hands that I'm now putting in the orange, which I'm ingesting. It's, it's in my body. So they're impossible to avoid, but knowledge is power, know better, do better. And minimizing your exposure across as many things as possible is critical. So what fragrance is on your clothes from your laundry detergent? What kind of sheets are you sleeping in? Are you sleeping in polyester sheets? What were they washed in? There is this other chemical not connected with the fragrances necessarily called 1,4-dioxane, which is a probable carcinogen in humans. You may have seen this in New York recently outlawed 1,4-dioxane containing detergents that have more than two parts per million. And there are multiple. And then there are multiple that have less than two parts per million, but still have 1,4-dioxane in them. I think seventh generation free and clear had zero parts per million. I just use white vinegar when I wash my clothes because it's pretty cheap and easy and safe. But I think about this a lot when I travel. What are the towels in the Airbnb that I'm going to stay at washed in? What are the sheets in the Airbnb that I stay at washed in? And I will email the people and say, hey, can you wash them in a fragrance-free detergent? I may even bring white vinegar or wash the sheets in white vinegar. Again, this is me. This is my level of involvement in this. I will bring sheets when I travel now. I'll bring 100% organic cotton sheets that I know are washed in white vinegar. And I just throw them on the bed. I don't have to worry about it. But it's still like dish towels, towels, like the fragrance is everywhere. You don't have to completely change everything in your life if it's too much, but just changing the detergent you wash your clothes and everything in your house in will significantly decrease your exposure to 1,4-dioxane, potentially phthalates, parabens, and other problematic things for humans, just for you and everyone in your home. While we're on this topic, talk about dishwasher detergent and dish rinse detergent, like dishwasher rinse aid. I didn't even know this is the thing. I haven't used a dishwasher in years. I hate dishwashers. Just philosophically, I hate the idea of taking a dish, putting it in a machine, having to wait an hour and a half, then it comes out, then I have to put it away. It's just like, I'm just going to wash the damn thing. <laughs> like, how is it so complicated? Why it's just, nice with like a dinner party. I just, then you, I think like, that's when a dishwasher comes in clutch. You, but, got, you got 10 plates of, you know, all the things appetizer it's a whole thing but when i have it but when i have a dinner party like then it's me and my friends at the sink and we're all bonding like we're all working together to clean up it's like just another part of our social interaction not a bad thing i get that i like washing dishes so i just like to break the plates afterwards <laughs> and say fuck it you don't even need that move even, on you don't need to wash them yeah, especially if you're airbnb yeah just break, break the shit <laughs> who cares it's true i mean why am i even washing the plates yeah uh, so that's the problem is it? so these contain and laundry detergents also contain this chemical. Um, I'm just like doom and gloom right now. Alcohol, <laughs> alcohol ethoxylates, and those are linked to gut damage. So that's really interesting because you think I go to this Airbnb 
And if they've washed the dishes in dishwasher rinse aid or dishwasher detergent that contains alcohol ethoxylates, and many of them do, and I eat food off of that, I'm ingesting something that can damage my gut. And again, look, if people listening to this have perfect ghost poops every time, you don't have any gut issues, then keep doing what you're doing. Who you cares? Ghost poop? Ghost poop. What does that mean? Like it doesn't even happen? Like you, ne- you, don't, you, wipe, you wipe and there's nothing there. Oh, I've never had a ghost poop. You've never had a ghost poop? <laughs> I don't think so. Bro, we need to hang out more. <laughs> I have ghost poops all the time. Really? Yeah. There's nothing on the toilet paper. Wow. You I don't what? use toilet paper, so I might have ghost poops all the time. I don't realize that. What, you use a bidet? Yeah. That's what I use. In or a of- shower. I do not <laughs> touch my asshole with toilet paper. That's where I stand. Did you know that many toilet papers contain BPA? I do know that. So that's crazy because when you think about- And bleach and bullshit, and it's just a waste environment, shipping like these dead trees across. Like if you had a little fecal matter in your arm, you never in a million years would say, hey bro, can you grab me a rag? There's some feces on my arm. Can I just kind of smear that in a little bit and then move on with my day? You would never do that. No. I choose that for my anus as well. Yeah, I agree. That's my flag. But I don't, there's no, I guess I'm at the Airbnb. There's no bidet, so I have to get in the shower. Shower, yeah. Jump in the shower, Take pop the shower. pants off. I literally, I go, I do a hip hinge, you know, and I drive it back and I do a little, and I'm, and I'm out of there. A natural bidet. Natural bidet, bro. You don't even have to take your shirt off. No. Just like roll it up. Well, I'll take my shirt off because I like to look at myself in the mirror. <laughs> Crop top. <laughs> Pants go down, butt in the shower. No, but it's interesting because I think women, so back to the Lululemon PFA in the crotch conversation, like I just think it's scientific fact that like women pee two to 2.5 times as much as men pee because their bladders are smaller or whatever. I don't know. Like women pee like six, eight times a day, man. They do pee a lot. I don't pee eight times a day. But every time a woman pees, they wipe with toilet paper right on their vagina, like very absorbent mucosal tissue, right? And apparently it's like a front to back thing. I get it. Okay, whatever. You don't want to do back to front. That's bad for women. But you're taking BPA containing paper six to eight times a day and wiping it on your vagina. Mm. That's not good. Mm. I mean, you and I are taking BPA, would be taking our the less intelligent versions of ourselves, the less in, intentional versions of Aaron and Paul. Mm. would take BPA containing toilet paper and wipe our anuses two times a day or once a day. Mm. But yeah, so ghost poop is when you wipe... <laughs> It's when you wipe with toilet paper and you don't see any like that's a ghost any poop. shit. Yeah. I, now I know the title of this episode. Ghost poop. Ghost poop with Paul. <laughs> how, Paul to, how to have a ghost poop. How to have a go- so how do you have a ghost poop? I think that it has to do with like very little inflammation in your gut. So generally I have ghost poops when I'm eating less fiber. So if I do more fruit juice, less fiber and meat and organs, the ghost it's often ghost poops happen. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but I do prefer it's the like bidet. A leprechaun. Yeah. appears out of nowhere. It just you're like, wow, four leaf clover in my butthole. <laughs> it's the equivalent of four leaf clover. All right. But the flip side of that is perhaps more important where you think, you know, if, if every time you're going to wipe, you're using up four times, you're like, man, you just keep wiping four or five times. You're like, there's shit on the toilet paper. There's shit on the toilet paper. There's shit on the, Jesus Christ. It's like grease factory back there. What the fuck is going on? Right. Like you and I know, like if you've had a GI bug or you have diarrhea, like it takes more to wipe your butt and get it clean. Oh yeah, it's you're, a process. You're doing the it whole wrong. Project. Yeah, you're doing it wrong. You should be using I'd rather day. hire somebody. <laughs> With a squirt gun <laughs> to just squirt your butt. <laughs> right, yeah. Like it's a, a lot. Hire a little Car- leprechaun. Carpal tunnel. A leprechaun. Yeah, <laughs> said anything. A leprechaun could wipe your butt That's for racist. you. We'll have to edit that out. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I don't know, felt, felt too far. Uh, <laughs> you can't hire a leprechaun. I'd say midget. <laughs>
want to take a moment and share a free resource with y'all to sort out your movement that is starting the first free week of the Align Method online program where you get a thorough movement assessment to establish what is your personal movement baseline. And then on top of that, we share fundamental mobility techniques that will make a massive difference in your own personal practice if you do any type of stretching or yoga or foam rolling or resistance band training or training in general. You want to get the most out of your body. These are must-know mobility techniques. And then it finishes with a sit-rise challenge so you can test yourself and see how effectively you get up and down off of the ground. That is the first week of the Align Method Online program. It's a six-week program. You can start the first week at alignpodcast.com slash a mp and with that you will also join the free align community where there's over 3,000 other members in there so i pop in there each day totally free the first week is totally free and then if you don't love the idea of continuing on with the six-week program then you can cancel anytime so check us out over at alignpodcast.com slash a m p what is is atrazine making the frogs gay that's an alex jones quote i think yeah and yeah what is atrazine Atrazine is a, uh, it's a pesticide and it ends up on a lot of grains. So atrazine is, uh, I think it's a pesticide. Yeah, it's a pesticide. There's, it's, it's not a mold toxin. It's a pesticide that ends up on a lot of grains that is, and again, a xenoestrogen. Mm -hmm. So how, what can, what can a humans do? And this perhaps would be more relevant for to reduce feminization through, um, environmental contaminants. So we, this is the whole conversation we've just been having, right? Yeah. Phthalates, PFAs, plastics, limit all that stuff, polyester on your junk, the water you're drinking, the food you're eating, all those things. And plastics even worse if they're getting heated up. In Even if they're getting heated up. So let's talk about BPA water bottles, BPA-free yeah. water bottles. That's a scam because BPS and BPE mm -hmm. are other bisphenol agents that are probably just as estrogenic as BPA. Mm. So I, in my own life, I aspire wow. to never drink liquids out of plastic period mm. right so you just there's gonna be some cross-contamination the longer the liquid is in there the hotter the liquid is in you know the container that's plastic the worse it is but i certainly have not 100 percent eliminated all food contact with plastic in my life i think the biggest thing for me is that when i buy meat it's often packaged in plastic and i haven't figured that out but for me if that's the one percent left or the two percent left that's great yeah. because there's that's much lower than less intentional paul from 10 years ago i'm drinking water in plastic i have a plastic nalgene bottle i'm heating water in the nalgene who knows right yeah. that's a big <clears throat> something that i learned from you actually four years ago or something that i, I just didn't know is that the the plastic lining of cans yeah that's an interesting thing and they all really, cans. they really sneak it in like every angle i don't know if they're sneaking it in it's just that those cans are aluminum and you can't have whatever's in the can in direct contact with the aluminum because the then the aluminum will leach into the liquid and that's bad too yeah and then who knows how long that can or bottle or whatever was just been baking out in the sun in some factory in indonesia before it oh, arrives yeah. to your doorstep in oh, yeah. texas and this is soda cans this is seltzer water cans this is ranch water cans this is alcoholic seltzer cans this is mm -hmm. everything in a can and then water is a is it a solvent is that the term for it so well, it, 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 it it will leach whatever it's in, in some sense with. yeah hence why water helps you know be able to pick up stains and yeah. such because it will it will it'll it'll pick it up it's it can pull that's it that's what it does yeah yeah so you're essentially drinking like this bpa thalite steeped tea by the time it arrives to your doorstep in, potentially in certain in certain situations potentially not, all, not always yeah yeah but bpa in the lining of cans is crazy because people don't think about that right you think about your what is it La LaCroix or whatever whatever water you want to drink out of a can and 
it's just it's 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 a lot of places yeah there's a i was, I was looking up the quote from the the, the serenity prayer I feel like this is all this all comes back <laughs> to the serenity prayer god grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change courage to change the things i can and the wisdom to know the difference living one day at a time enjoying one moment at a time taking this world as it is, I'm going too far into it, but there's only a couple more, couple more words left. And not as I would have had it, as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your. Oh, it goes on, but the first, just the first, the first part of there. I think that's, I think that's where, that's a relevant thing. You're not going to be able to just live in a, in a BPA free bubble your whole life. It would be really weird if you did. You probably wouldn't have many friends, and then then you come back to like the Harvard Happiness Study. That's the longest lever for right. longevity, health, you yep. know, and all of these biomarkers kind of comes back in a way, I believe, to basic things: get enough sunlight, get enough movement, make sure you have a, a social group that you really love. You know, feel like you like you you have purpose in your life. Like yeah. some of these invin invisible factors. That's not so easy to quantify and place into a beaker and create some evidence-based, you know, research around. Yeah, it's the invisible stuff, you know, and I think that that's like really important. And then also getting into these objective material aspects of our world, such as, you know, endocrine disrupting chemicals. Yeah, and it's it's changing. I mean, the world is changing around us. I think it's important to know. I mean, we all drive cars. Those cars are full of flame retardants, which you're ingesting just by driving the car. Yeah. No way out. Yeah. So where do you, what is your perspective on where the, the, I know this is probably outside of what you typically talk about, but where does the mind come into this and where does, you know, if you, there's, there's a bunch of research around gratitude, having physiological effect, you know, or meditation having physiological effect and just the thoughts that I think this, what was it like the, the second, I'm, I'm going to butcher this, this is probably not completely correct. I think you know it better than I do, but I think like the second, uh, most, Second leading cause of deaths in association to COVID, I think, was like fear-based disorders. You, do you remember reading something like that? I don't remember that. It's like anxiety. It was like anxiety. Could be. Like yeah. I'm just I'm stressed out. Yeah. Like that was a considered of a, a primary comorbidity in relation to the deaths around COVID. From what I read, fact check, fact check me. You know, but but the way that we think and the way that we feel and the way that we perceive our reality has physiological material effect. And, and so, without a doubt, where does that come in in this conversation? Hugely important. Hugely important. I mean, I was talking about this the other day with a friend that there's a study looking at the regression of coronary artery sclerosis. So cardiovascular disease, plaque formation. Mm. And the, the single most important variable, there was a multi-interventional trial. The single most important variable in that trial was 40 minutes of meditation a day. Like that's meaningful stress reduction. 40 minutes is a long time to meditate, dude. For me, it is. So like two 20 minute bouts or just any version? Of I don't know exactly doctor. what the protocol was, yeah. but it was that is 40 minutes of meditation a day. Who knows what the minimum effective dose is, yeah. but like a good, a good session of meditation a day was powerful for regression of plaque formation of the body. That's power. Wow. Right. So like, that's cool. So like, just like really, really kicking stress in the nuts. That's a good deal. Like that's what you want to do. Now that's, that's so hard. And I kind of hate conversations about stress because they're so hand wavy and voodoo. And, mm. but I, I think it's true. Like if, if we could trick our minds and just saying like, I don't want to be stressed today. I'm not going to be stressed today. That's really good long-term. Mm. My, my action item for that was I might get a calendar and just write on the calendar a number from one to 10 of how stressed I was in that day. And maybe at the end of the day, this is just an idea. And maybe that makes me think about that stress and where it came from and how I can hack that. 
because I want that number to be as low as possible every day. And I don't want to get stressed when somebody cuts me off in traffic. And I'm in, so before this, I was in Central Market filming here in Austin. And it's crazy on Saturday in Central Market. It is bonkers there, man. There's so many people and it's just, wow, this is a stressful environment. And I'm trying to be more aware. Why am I getting stressed about this? Just let it go, dude. But yeah, I think being in charge of your mind, I think the thing that's coming to my mind, ironically, is a scene from Avatar, hot tip James Cameron, of like riding the freaking dragon, you know, these air dragons or these water creatures and just, you get on the thing and it just takes you for a wild ride. But if you can tame it, if you can ride that dragon, I think it's even a book or some colloquialism people talk about, like if you can ride that avatar dragon of your mind and your stress and just not let it take you for a ride, that's a hugely powerful thing. Mm. I'm certainly not the person to talk to about that. That's not my field, but I think about it. What drives you at this point? You mentioned earlier, but like what, what fills you with the most um, inspiration, joy, you know, feeling like connected to something worthwhile. Like what, 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 what drives you at this point? Cause you, you're kind of, you've done a lot in the last, since I've known you, I think we met maybe four years ago or so you've gone through a, a pretty massive expansion and evolution of yourself and of your brand. And like, what's the, what's the purpose for you at this point? Like what, 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 what stokes your fire? Yeah. So it's, it's, there's a couple ways to answer that question. I think the first thing I'll say is that as, as I've seen people resonate with the message, I feel even more excited about continuing to do work that I find valuable or that I want people to find value in because it feels like I have a responsibility. You sort of realize like, whoa, people are finding value. I should keep doing this. Mm -hmm. This is value. This is beneficial to people. And there starts to be this loop where I'm in central market and people are like, what's up, dude? I love your work. It helped yeah. me so much. You're like, holy shit, thanks for the pat on the back, man. Digital pats on the back don't mean anything. I mean, I still want people yeah, to comment on Instagram and tell me how beneficial things are or what's worked for them and what hasn't. But as a human, when I see a comment on Instagram, it means, it means very little to me. But when I meet someone in person and I meet somebody in the airport in San Jose, Costa Rica, and they say, hey, my plaque psoriasis was all over my leg and my calf, and it was very embarrassing for me. And I changed my diet in a lot of the ways you recommend Paul and it got better. I'm like, wow, that's really fucking cool. I should keep doing this. You know, this is, this is helping people. Let's keep going. And then you think who knows what, where it goes eventually. I think it's just do the best work and then maybe affect the most people as possible in a positive way or make people, help people become curious. And then the other side of the question is, I think what what fuels me in that work is doing the things I'm really passionate about for me that are hobbies that have nothing to do with this work. Yeah. Like directly nothing to do with this work. And that's surfing for me right now or snowboarding or being in the mountains or mountaineering. And that's why I live in Costa Rica, essentially that getting up every morning when I'm in Costa Rica and surfing for two to three hours is so found. It's just like so fundamentally joyous for me. It's, it's, it's eight year old Paul, Right. You know, riding my bike down the street, doing wheelies. It's just pure joy. And it's me in the ocean with my friends. And you come out of the ocean, you think, man, that was freaking great. Or you get a good wave, which doesn't happen every day. But when it does, you just think that was incredible. That was freaking incredible. That is a joyous thing. And that fuels everything else I do in my life. Because I think that's something that gets lost in this sort of hyper, hyper like grind work hard culture oh, yeah. is if you want to be successful in what you're doing creatively, do what you love. And that sounds cheesy. What do I mean by that? Do the hobby that you want to do. If you like ballet, if you like lifting weights, if you like jujitsu, if you like 
surfing, if you like mountaineering, if you like trapeze, whatever it is you like, that's your favorite freaking thing in the world. You must do that to do everything else in your life. Mm. Well, that's mm. what I believe strongly. And that's a, that's a big reason. I mean, it's bittersweet saying this as I'm sitting across from you, my friend here in Austin, this is the main reason I left Austin. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. The, as you're saying that something that comes to mind is, is coming back to the, the, um, you know, people say we're going through a, a mental health crisis of sorts. It's like, you know, I don't know. I don't know what that means exactly, but there's a lot of usage of anti-anxiety medication and antidepressants Dude. and, you know, self-harm and suicidal ideation, particularly with like young people. It's just like, huh, like we're going in an interesting direction. It seems at least statistically speaking, if you look at, if you're looking at that, I don't know. I don't really know what's going on because I can't meet every single person, but that's what the statistics suggest. Uh, and you mentioned something that I thought was interesting. It's like tapping into that that eight-year-old Paul or that like young, young Paul. And I feel like if we're wearing the adult costume that we're supposed to be stressed out and we're supposed to be serious, we're supposed to be business and we're supposed to be busy. I feel like that influence our, influences our physiology quite significantly as well. And if you can come back into that eight-year-old Paul and just like, I just want to play. Like, what does that do to your biomarkers? That's got to improve things. It's got to improve things, man. I mean, I, I would challenge every person listening to this podcast to think about the last time in their life that they were just like fundamentally joyful. Mm. And was it your childhood? Was it whatever it was? Was it dancing at ACL with your friends? Like that's the, that's what I'm trying to cultivate more of in my life to fuel all the other creative work. But just, I don't even have the word for it, but it's just like explosively joyful. Yeah, adamonia is that the? I don't even know. That's an amazing word. Yeah, I think I think that's what it is. Adamonia. I know I'll look it up afterwards. But there's there's a a a Greek word for that where you're you're like living in your passion, living in your purpose, living in your joy. It's like this effortless like uwe is a Japanese word for it. Yeah, go to Japan. No, but that that's there's the availability availability to be in that. But to be in that, I think it's it's getting out of the way of yourself. You know, and being in a place of like, you could go into like flow state, all these different words. There's a lot of different words to, to describe the same state, but, but essentially it's that state where you're just like, you're not paying attention to the time. You're not paying attention to what you need to do or your to-do list. You're not paying attention to Instagram notifications. You're not, I don't even want to take a picture. I'm too in the moment right now to want yeah. to take a picture of this. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what's up. That's what's up. Yeah. That's the shit. That's the shit, man. <laughs> I just think a lot of people don't have that and, I, and that makes me sad. So I hope more people get that. And, and that's a big, that's a big driver for my work as well as I want people to be healthy enough to be able to do that. Right. Right. This idea that I love the word birthright. It's getting used a lot now, but at heart and soil, which is a company that I have here in Austin, you know, yeah. the slogan is like, you know, you're, you're reclaim your birthright to radical health. And I feel like that's so cool. Like we all have a birthright to that, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. we all have a birthright to be really freaking joyful and yeah. strong and vital and libidinous and virile. And, and that's, I, that's what I don't want people to forsake. Yeah. We all deserve that. Yeah. We all own it. Yeah. We all have that birthright. And I think that the medical system, like we talked about, tries to convince us it's not ours and so many things in our environment, at least the messages we're getting are, 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 not encouraging us to remember or to work toward getting that back mm. because we, we all have that ability to be really, really fully alive and strong and, mm -hmm. you know, have this incredible experience of being humans. Yeah. Yeah. But your identity structure is very powerful and who you believe you are is who you will become. Yeah. 
you know? So if you think that you are yes, a victim. Decrepit. Yeah, broken. Or you think you're decrepit. Or, or you bad genetics. A, yeah. I did yeah. a podcast with a gal. She's like a PhD from Stanford professor, all the things. I don't remember her name right now. Sorry. Um, but she has a book around the, the psychosomatic uh, influence or, or relationship in, in aging and the way that we age, you know, or how our thoughts affect the way that we age. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> one of the studies that I think she conducted was they asked a bunch of people at, at around age 30 what their perception of the process of aging is. And there was some people, it's like aging sucks. You fall apart, you know, you get old. It's just like, ah, you lose your, you know, you lose your freedom, eventually some retirement home. And then there's other people it's like aging sounds great. You know, you, you, I'll, I'll get better at life. I have more opportunity. Every day is another opportunity to just get better at life. Like that's, that's my operating system. And in that study, uh, which we'll have to maybe include the, the episode in the show notes, when they came back to the people at age 60, they had, it was almost like 50%, it was around that 50%, um, variance in the people that claimed a positive belief system on aging were 50% less likely to experience cardiovascular disease mm. 30, 30 years later, which is very, you know, and there's so much, there's so much dirtiness in that data. Cause I, I think there's, there's, there's no way to be like, Oh, well, it was that thought, you know, but I think that that our belief system, it really does form, you know, the way that we eat the food that we deserve. You know, if I feel like I'm kind of like, ah, I'm kind of more like low life kind of guy, you know, I don't really deserve a lot. I'm like, I'm, I'm more Burger King guy. Cheetos. Yeah. Cheetos. Like that's just, that's who I am. It's all good. I'm all, all good, bro. You know, if I believe that like, no, you know what? I deserve like filet mignon. That's what I deserve. You know, so, so much of this comes, uh, comes back to, to, I think, you know, who we think we are, you know, and what we think we, that we deserve. I wonder about that. You know, when we're, we were filming in HEB here the other day and we were in the Doritos aisle talking about red 40 and blue one and yellow five, which are food dyes that many of which are illegal throughout Europe, but then they have all sorts of problems associated with them, behavioral issues in kids, allergic reactions, skin issues, potentially liver toxicity, at least in animal models. And, you know, I'm looking at this bag of cool ranch Doritos and thinking I ate that as a kid, but I would never eat that now. I mean, the picture of the Dorito on the side of the, package literally has blue spots on it. It mm -hmm. looks like some sort of, some sort of uh, amalgamation of a monster from Monsters Inc. It's like this, who's going to eat something with blue dye spots on the chip? And of course there's multiple people just walking by us, grabbing the Doritos in front of us as we're filming. And I'm thinking, how do I help that person? Like what is their value structure? What is going on in their life that they, they're eating the Dorito? I don't think they think it's healthy I think it's good. It just tastes good. It tastes good. Yeah. I don't care. I don't think I don't have any connection between the way that I feel and what I'm eating. And that's, that's an interesting right. challenge. Intuitive eating. That's something that's more kind of like scientism type demographic of people will be like, Oh boy, you eat intuitively. <laughs> I hate that. Oh word, yeah. God. I'm, there's a lot of things that I, I've had a lot of resistance around over the years. And now I'm kind of always like, yeah, I, I eat intuitively. That's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Sorry guys. <laughs> You know, like I, I know when I've eaten too much. Yeah. I know when I drank too much water. I know when I need some water. You know, like there's, there's, I know when, if I eat some whatever, some organs or some steak or some whatever the thing is, how that makes me feel. I know how I feel if I eat a cookie. Like I, I, that, that's intuitive eating. It yeah. doesn't need to be some airy fairy weird thing. It's just like, it's just listening to your body. 
it's not that weird. I think it breaks down. <laughs> I think it breaks down for people when they are baseline not healthy. Right. It, you know, if somebody is obese and metabolically unwell, I, I, I'm intuitively eating a pizza, right? Right. Like, okay, that doesn't really work. But if at, at the level that you're at with the intentional amount of your food, and I'm the same way, mm. I can tell when I've eaten something that you doesn't need to clean up the signal to be able to actually hear signal the to noise. Be able to hear. The, the message the noise so yeah. you can differentiate i'm just filled with noise versus there's actually some signal here yeah and i've cleared it enough maybe not perfect but enough that i can hear the signal yeah and i can i can feel when there's the feedback of the noise coming in yeah. it's like oh I don't, I don't like that but if you're just all cacophonous noise good luck with intuitive eating yeah yeah that's the tr that's the challenge with it yeah we uh, we can wrap up soon because I'm sure you have other things to, to, to do with your, your day while you're out here. But I want to talk about um, beyond meat, fake, you know, I don't know if, if fake, well, I guess fake, whatever, but meat substitutes. Yeah. What, why do they make him look like meat? Why don't you just embrace what you are, bro? <laughs> like if you're a pea protein, just be pea protein. It should just be shaped like peas. Just be a pea. What are you doing? <laughs> Why are you looking like, ch I thought you don't want to eat chicken. Why are you looking like chicken? Well, you looking a, like a burger. There's a clear like answer here. Okay. So I walk into Central Market, <laughs> right? We just did this, Aaron. You walk into Central Market and the first thing you see when you leave the produce is a counter of fake meat that, that Central Market is making or they're selling. Mm. It's like a meat counter, but it's all fake meat. And there's fake meat Korean barbecue rigs, ribs, fake meat pork sausage, fake meat bacon, fake meat ground beef, you name it. There's fake meat everything. And it's because I think it's very clear and I don't think that vegans see the irony in this. And this is said with all the empathy and love and compassion for vegans in the world, um, that, that you're clearly craving meat in your mind. And we know this. There are studies where we put EEG leads. So electroencephalography, which is how we track seizures and activity in different areas of the brain. You can put these leads on people's heads. We may have talked about the study in the past. And you can show people who are vegetarian or vegan pictures of meat, and you can show omnivore pictures of meat. And, mm. you know, like in the, in the conscious brain, vegans and vegetarians have an aversive response to meat. Omnivores have a positive response. But in the unconscious brain, both the vegans, the vegetarians, and the omnivores have a positive response to the meat. That's why it's shaped like meat. Because, wow. because even though you have decided that you don't want to eat meat, your brain and your body still knows that meat is foundational for human history, life, vitality. It's a part of our evolution that is inescapable. It probably made us human. Eating meat made us human because it's of the nutrients. It's only two million years. Exactly. It's not <laughs> like, that much time the human brain only tripled in size when we started eating meat and hunting like it's probably not that big a deal it only tripled in size yeah. so that's why it's shaped like meat is that you are a vegan or vegetarian thinking i really want some barbecue ribs man i just want to eat some ground beef okay there it is right there except it's made from wheat gluten and soybeans and it's made from canola oil and this is hilarious you look at the label on these fake meats at central market there's literally 57 things on the label 57 ingredients, fake vitamins, binders, preservatives, 57 ingredients for your vegan bacon. Are you freaking kidding me? Like yeah, this is yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. And so really important caveat that we've, uh, we've shared, I think probably every time we've, we've talked is when, uh, and both of us, not that I'm going to speak for you, but I, I believe both of us are talking about eating meat. We're not talking about the are they called CAFOs? Like yeah, yeah. industrialized yeah, farming, yeah. just like yeah, yeah. 
it seems like collectively vegan, vegetarian, carnivore, whatever, everybody can agree yeah. that the meat industry largely sucks and there's regenerative farms. Better ways there, to do it. There's better ways to do it. And there's a similar conversation where, you know, Monsanto and monocropping and so like all of that kills a lot of creatures. So that sucks too. There's probably better ways to do that. So there's a deeper, more nuanced conversation here that gets lost in the the provocative, you know, Instagram titles. Uh, we should touch on this because I I love shitting on plant based milks mm. because the rhetoric around plant based milks is so brazenly false mm. that it gets me really triggered. And so you look at Oatly, or you look at whatever oat milk you've got. We we pulled two of them off the shelf at Central Market today, and both of them say this sort of Bo boilerplate rhetoric, better for you, better for the planet. And you think, oh, it's better for the planet that you're monocropping a field full of pesticides, that you're destroying the complete ecosystem in that field, everything that was there before, mm. that you're tilling the soil, that you're depleting the soil of nutrients and that you're putting all sorts of harmful things into this land. That's that's better for the planet. Eventually leading to desertification. Of exactly. That that's better for the planet. But that's what Oatly says on the side of their bottle. And then they also say better for you. And I think well, better for you when it contains seed oils? <laughs> like, no, better for you because it's oxidizing your LDL, better for you because it's increasing your cardiovascular disease risk? No, it's, we, we've just gone so astray. Like people just don't understand the reality and there's no, you can say anything you want, I guess, on these packages. And that's, you know, that's why I feel compelled to say, hey, I, I think this is false. I think this is a lie on the side of these bottles. This plant-based milk is not better for humans. Mm. It's not better for the planet in any way, shape or form. And it's not better for you, even if it's just almonds and water, it's not better for you because almonds are a seed. We've talked about this on previous podcasts. Seeds yeah. have defense chemicals. They have digestive enzyme inhibitors, phytic acid. And that's not to mention all the oat milks and almond milks that have carrageenan, a compound from algae that's known to irritate the gut, cause gut issues or seed oils, et cetera, et cetera. So you get- It's kind of comparable. Like one of the values of an animal is you're getting- it's almost like a shotgun approach of getting vital nutrients. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting analogy that's just popping up to my mind. It's like, it doesn't need anything else. It just comes equipped with what you need. It's kind of interesting that in those plant-based milk substitutes, it needs a whole bunch of stuff to be okay. And stabilizers and thickeners and sweeteners and all of that. It's kind of interesting. Like it's almost like allegory. It's very ironic. If you look at, the nutrition facts on uh, a package of ground beef, which is just beef. There's a lot of nutrients in there. There's yeah. iron, there's B12, there's K2, and not all these are on the labels, but there's bioavailable protein. But if you, there's creatine, there's carnitine. If you look at the nutrition facts on a bottle of plant milk, that's just almonds and water, mm. there's like nothing on there. Yeah. There's no, there's no nutrients there. And the nutrients that are there are not very bioavailable. Like say you'd say, oh, almonds are high in magnesium. Well, that magnesium is not very bioavailable because it's chelated by phytic acid. Yeah. So in order for plant-based meat, quote unquote, to have anything of substance on the nutrition label, they have to add a bunch of synthetic vitamins. And this is the, this is the thing with Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat. If you look at their nutrition label, it might say, oh, it's got this zinc or it's got this iron or it's got this, well, that's because they added synthetic things to it. It's not actually in any of the food that they put in there. There's not a lot of food in plant-based meat, but one could argue that soybeans or 
methyl cellulose, which is essentially wood dust. That's not really food. Mm. But, you know, to make it look like there's nutrients, they have to add a bunch of synthetic nutrients. If you look at any animal food, whether it's eggs or meat or milk, those nutrition labels are just full of nutrients with nothing added. Mm. Across the spectrum of, of sweeteners, what is worst or most deleterious to your health sweetener and what is most health-inducing sweetener? So we're including artificial and yeah. 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 So artificial up to your, you know, I assume you're probably going to say honey or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Artificial to, yeah. to just sweet stuff. This is actually really important because I think that there's so much in the quote health space now that is containing artificial sweeteners because people fear some types of sugar like honey or maple syrup. I mean, it's so crazy. It's really crazy because we want, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, just thinking about protein powders, for instance. No one will buy a protein powder with 20 grams of sugar per serving, even if that sugar is maple sugar or sugar made from dates or sugar made from honey, because people want the protein powder to have no sugar. And this is a whole separate conversation. Fine. But your protein powder is going to taste like garbage without some sweetness in it. So what do we use? We use stevia. We use erythritol. We use sucralose. We use aspartame. They use all kinds of garbage to make. And this is so crazy to me, even monk fruit. So let's talk about the artificial sweeteners. I think that probably the worst artificial sweeteners are probably aspartame, ACE-K, and sucralose. Those are the main three artificial sweeteners you find out there. And I'm basing that statement on trials in both humans and animals, suggesting that they affect insulin sensitivity negatively, potentially inducing anxiety. So there's a study with, I think it's aspartame yeah. in, in rats, um, where levels of aspartame well below the FDA minimum dose equivalents caused anxiety in lab animals that was heritable for multiple generations. Yeah. So this is crazy to think that this is in a lot of food. I think it was, I wrote down, I think it was 15% is what I heard you say. 15% so, of the FDA dose equivalent for aspartame caused yeah. heritable anxiety. With rats. In animals. Yeah. Yeah. But you think, has anyone ever done the study in humans? Like that's yeah. wild. That's 15% of the, like you can use you know, that's seven times less than they could actually put in there for humans. And I heard you say as well um, that it's a heritable trait. Yes. Anxiety. So it passed on to their children. It was heritable. Or not, well, I don't know. Do you call rat children? Children? Babies? Yeah, the litter? <laughs> yeah. Litter? Yeah. The what litter. is a children? Is a children just a human? I don't know. Like rat children? Rat ch I don't think you say that. <laughs> rat babies? I don't think so. Yeah, but it's, it's crazy. And then sucralose. When you eat sucralose with carbohydrates... There are human studies showing that that, this, that changes insulin signaling in a negative way. ACE-K probably does the same thing. We know that all of those, ACE-K, aspartame, and sucralose, negatively affect the gut flora by interfering with quorum sensing, which is essentially text messaging between your gut bacteria. So all the sweeteners are going to mess up. All those artificial sweeteners, quote unquote, are going to mess up gut signaling. So then you get into this realm of natural artificial sweeteners. Stevia, what else? Erythritol monk fruit. And stevia is used as a contraceptive in a lot of indigenous cultures. And there is evidence, I believe from animal models, that it acts as a contraceptive, that it actually interrupts fertility. In yeah. So stevia, I'm not a fan of. Stevia is also known to interrupt this quorum sensing in the gut. So stevia negatively affects gut flora. It appears to. Stevia doesn't seem to have the same effects on insulin signaling, but both stevia and monk fruit sweetener which I'll talk about more in detail in a moment, affect insulin signaling in a potentially negative way. We don't have as many studies in humans, but we know that they actually increase insulin signaling. 
want to take a moment and share about something that has truly made a massive difference in my life as of recent. That is going through the diagnostic process with LifeForce. LifeForce is a health optimization company that is bringing a personalized approach to help you take control of your health. It all starts with the LifeForce Diagnostic, a comprehensive blood test that measures over 40 biomarkers that impact your mental and physical health, from your nutrient levels to hormone balance to key risk factors for disease and much more. The LifeForce Diagnostic gave me a snapshot of precisely what the heck is happening inside of my body. Then the next step, I jumped on a call with a LifeForce functional medicine doctor, and she was absolutely amazing. I asked her a whole gamut of questions, and uh, I was probably a pretty annoying patient, I would say, because I just kept asking questions and she kept having answers. She was incredibly welcoming, incredibly sweet, and just really brilliant with the information. Um, so she mapped out a very clear, concise plan uh, for me. Uh, she was working with me. I think it, I just felt very supported the whole time. Uh, some of the things that we saw there was a deficit with me was particularly DHEA uh, and then also omegas. So they got me on a couple nutraceuticals and I swear to God, um, I since starting these guys, I feel um, almost uncomfortable saying it like this because it's an ad, but it truly made a massive difference. My word recall, my energy levels, my libido um, has has significantly shifted since starting. So I'm freaking excited and I would absolutely implore any of y'all to at least get the diagnostic done so you can get that snapshot of what's going on inside of your blood, what is going on inside of your biology so you're not guessing. You know exactly what's happening and then you can start making decisions from there. If you'd like to get 15% off, uh, you can go to mylifeforce.com. That's M-Y-L-I-F-E-F-O-R-C-E.com and then use Align code at checkout for 15 percent off and that is a very meaningful 15 percent off as well so i can't recommend it enough i think you guys are going to really dig it i think it's going to be really amazing for your own health journey jump over to mylifeforce.com and use the align code for 15 percent off have you ever heard of the contraceptive in asian cultures where they drop their balls in some hot water <laughs> You know about that? I think I've, this is essentially what we talked about earlier with the cream acid. What muscle. I'm doing right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you <laughs> heat the balls, yeah. Ah. If you if you heat the balls up too much, you won't make good sperm. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if I'm inhibiting my cream master muscle. You are. Ah oh, shit. You're hampering. You your don't cream want cream master atrophy. That's the worst. <laughs> There's nothing worse than cream master atrophy. You want those balls to be able to move. It's one thing. It's I've, atrophying. One you want thing, a strong cream master. One thing I've learned. Yeah. So even even monk fruit stevia. Erythritol negative effects in humans. Monk fruit is interesting to me because people think that like that's completely natural because it's monk fruit, right? Well, your monk fruit sweetener is not monk fruit. Only 1% of the monk fruit is these mogricides, these molecules that are concentrated to make monk fruit sweetener. So we've taken a molecule that's, a, that's very sweet and is 1% of a monk fruit and we've concentrated it to make monk fruit sweetener. Mm -hmm. What could possibly go wrong? Right. right. We've taken something that's in very small amounts in a fruit and just amplified it. And we're giving humans a huge dose yep. that we would never get evolutionarily. That's yep. problem. And we know that monk fruit sweetener does cause insulin signaling to change. So again, it's a problem. I don't think stevia is benign. I don't think erythritol is benign. I don't think monk fruit sweetener is benign. And so people are losing their mind going, what am I going to do? And I, I think a tablespoon of honey. Yeah. What are we doing? <laughs> like, what are we talking about? How about some maple syrup, bro? 
Not that big a deal. Not that big a deal, man. I feel like it comes back to some part of, um, it's almost like modern humans in some ways are af afraid of their own nature. Yes. We're afraid to have sex drive. Yeah. We're afraid that we like sugar, <laughs> that yeah. we like fruit or fruit juice yeah. or maple syrup or honey. Yeah, like the simplicity of honey, it just, it seems too simple. Like I need something that's engineered from technology for me to trust it which is an inherent distrust of the simplicity and the elegance of nature. I think that where, to me. yeah, I, I think you're right. I think where it gets confusing is that you could say, well, cookies are sweet too, but cookies, cakes, what's happened in agribusiness and all of these processed sweet foods is manufacturers are preying on the fact that evolutionarily we seek sweet foods mm -hmm. and a Snickers bar is this bastard child evolutionary equivalent of a piece of fruit. And that is not a piece of fruit. That's high fructose corn syrup, that's binders, that's wheat gluten, that's seed oils, that's contaminants, that's all sorts of problematic things for humans. But your body thinks it's a piece of fruit. So you say, yeah, I want a Snickers bar. Mm -hmm. And my niece and nephew say, we love candy. And what they're really saying is we love fruit. Like evolutionarily, our ancestors, and this is my five-year-old niece and three-year-old nephew are not saying this, but they're, the deep part of their brain is saying, my ancestors from 500,000 years ago would love honey when they could get it from bees. They would love maple syrup if they made it. You know, they would love to eat fruit when it's in season. That's what they're saying. But what they're saying in 2023 is we love candy. Yeah. Because candy is the most available food that has displaced those foods. Yeah. It's okay that you like fruit. It's okay that you like honey. And this is an important point. Sugar in the form of honey and fruit does not cause diabetes. It does not cause insulin resistance. It does not cause obesity. If you look at the literature, that's abundantly clear. Yep. You can give someone red orange juice and it improves endothelial function. Mm. We talked about endothelial function, the cells on the inside of your blood vessels. How anyone can claim that fruit juice is bad for you when it improves your endothelial function is, is far, I don't understand it. Mm. Well, isn't there something around the fruit juice being because you're lacking the, the fiber and the chewing and the release of amylase and the various different enzymes that help with the breakdown of sugar and just like the, you're slowing down the process of consuming the fruit. Isn't there something to that that you're just kind of like bypassing one important aspect of digestion or is there nothing there? That's the theory, but there's no substance there when you look at it. I mean, you can- Really? There's no substance. Come on. No, I can show you papers that there's, if you look at GI, <laughs> so look at glycemic index, right? Yeah. So what you're talking about there is glycemic index. Yeah. How quickly does your blood sugar spike? Yeah. It doesn't predict cardiovascular disease outcomes at all. It doesn't, oh, I'm not saying cardiovascular disease. I'm more just saying feeling kind of shitty. Doesn't, I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, really? it doesn't matter. It doesn't do anything. Like if anything, I would say it's better. <laughs> like the faster the sugar gets into your body, the better you're going to feel. And people are going to lose their mind. I'm losing my mind, <laughs> Saladino. No, man, <laughs> drink a glass of orange juice. You know, like you'll-, you'll Really? Feel, yes, it's not bad God for you. dang it. It's not bad for you. There's, there's zero evidence that drinking orange juice and having your blood sugar go up is bad for any part of your physiology. That's what, I mean, that's the same as drink is eating honey, bro. Yeah. Like these are high glycemic index carbohydrates. They're not harmful for humans, mm -hmm. but everyone thinks they are. And I don't, it's just, there's no good evidence for that. Now there's a researcher named Robert Lustig, who's I think rightly pointed out that processed sugars are bad for humans. And that when you remove sugar sweetened drinks, which are mostly high fructose corn syrup from human diets, humans get better. But you must not conflate that with fruit juice, orange juice, apple juice, honey. Right. And now I'm talking about like fresh squeezed apple juice, right? Now, is an apple juice from the store that's pasteurized and- Yeah, I feel pretty good if I get a fresh squeezed orange juice. 
that's not in plastic. Like a nice lemonade. Right? What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, my my intuition says that's okay. Your intuitive eating. My intuitive eating says that's <laughs> Your okay. Your spidey sense says it's fine. I think, bro, I think intuition is very important. Yeah. Yeah. That's a real thing. I think, and I think a lot of the, the, uh, like debasing of one's intuition in podcasts and, and just like the common zeitgeist yeah. in very scientific, rational deductionist mindset that is kind of, it's like sitting upon the culture that we come from, which is, I think a lot of mysticism and animism. And there's a lot of other layers to what got us to here, mm -hmm. you know, and presently we're in a place where if someone says I'm, you know, the word intuition, everybody's just like, oh boy. And I think that perpetuates itself in a way. True. I'm kind of in a place of like, no bro, like intuition, man. <laughs> Fucking let's like go, go, go deeper. Let's be intuitive. Let's be intuitive, dude. But like, let's go back to sugar for a moment and be intuitive. <laughs> you know, I'm with the Hadza. We get a, we, we get a hive. They literally make fire in two minutes from nothing. Yeah. Sticks. They're rubbing sticks together in two minutes. They have a fire. They smoke the bees out of this hive. Yeah. My intuition feels like that's pretty awesome. These hods go ham on that fucking honey. <laughs> like yeah. they ate the whole thing. I was yeah. eating this honeycomb with larva in it. I'm eating these like bug larva. They're nutty. That's good. Yeah. And I like, like the hods are just going crazy on it. They're not like, oh man, bro, you're going to spike your insulin. Don't do it so much. Right. And so I think that what I would say to people listening, if this whole conversation around sugar is breaking your brain, do not conflate research with high fructose corn syrup. Right with naturally occurring sugar in fruit, fruit juice and honey or maple syrup. They're not the same thing. It's the same conversation with the meat stuff. And it is factory farmed meat is not the same as regeneratively raised meat in any yeah. way, shape or form. Yeah. Um, just, I mean, if you do the research on high fructose corn syrup, we don't have to go terribly far down this rabbit hole, but high fructose corn syrup is made from corn. There's no fructose in corn. That's a dextrose, right? That's a, that's an alpha amylose polymer. It's all glucose. So you have to take this glucose polymer, break it apart with enzymes. Then you have to isomerize the glucose to make fructose and you have to extract it and put it back together or there's free fructose and free glucose. And though I'm not completely convinced that the high fructose corn syrup industry is being honest about this, supposedly up until 2008, there was significant amount of mercury contamination in high fructose corn syrup. They say they've cleaned it up, but I don't buy it. Because if you look at the research, there's research in lab animals that if you give lab animals mice, rats, and their litters, not children. Mm, children. If you give them, if you give them equi equivalent calorie amounts of sucrose and high fructose corn syrup, which should be the same thing, right? Sucrose is a disaccharide of glucose and fructose. High fructose corn syrup is glucose and fructose. You can give them the same amount of calories of high fructose corn syrup and sucrose and the mats, the, the mats, the mice and rats with high fructose corn syrup get fatter significantly fatter. Mm. So high fructose corn syrup, clearly worse than sucrose. The sucrose mice don't even really have that much problem if you're just feeding them sucrose. Yeah. So with, with the concentration stuff, you have a, I think it was a post I heard you talking about on, the, on a podcast, but you, you mentioned the, and we will wrap up soon. I want to talk about the sun. Yeah. And then we can wrap up. Yeah. Do you, do you got to get out of here? No, I think we're good. Okay, cool. We're all good. Right, all right, good. Um, but one of the things, I don't know if you'll remember it exactly, but in order to get the amount of linoleic acid in five to seven tablespoons yes. of corn oil, do you remember your, your, your statistics 60, on that? 60 plus ears of corn. Yeah. 60 to 70 is what you, what you mentioned in the podcast yeah. is 2.5 pounds of sunflower seeds to get the equivalent of sunflower oil, I presume yes. two pounds of soybeans and then 
it's just odd that like rapeseed isn't even a thing that we would. It's not even a canola, food. Canola oil. No, it's not even a food. We would how, never eat rapeseed. How messed up is canola oil? Well, it's messed or, up. Or not. It's messed up at a lot of levels. So canola, do you know what canola stands for? Canola is Canadian oil low right. acid, right? So canola oil is an invention, a Canadian invention. It's from the rapeseed. And I don't know if they were making something else out of the rapeseed or in Canada, they thought, hey, we can make an oil out of this. It's cheap. It'll be great. People will like it because it has, you know, I don't know why people like canola oil. Maybe because it has less linoleic acid or more monounsaturated oils. I don't know why. It's just cheap. It's cheap. I think it's just available and cheap. But if you look at, I don't even think we've posted this, but we've done content on this. The, The environmental impact of growing canola is significant and it's quite negative. Talk to me about harming the planet. Like canola plants destroy ecosystems, destroy the land that they're being grown on by depleting minerals and, you know, you're destroying land to make canola farms. And this isn't even a food for humans. This is a rapeseed. You had to hybridize. They had to hybridize rapeseeds to make them low erucic acid. So on the side of the Oatly bottle, it says low erucic acid rapeseed oil because regular rapeseed oil is high in erucic acid, which is a fatty acid that has been associated with cardiomyopathy in humans. That's not good. So first of all, you're eating an oil that had to be synthetically modified, genetically modified, and erucic acid in the normal amount of oil historically is not good for humans. Why would you want any of it? But anyway, so low erucic acid rapeseed oil is approved by the FDA and the Canadian bodies for humans. So Canadian oil low acid is what canola oil is. The problem with canola oil is just that it's pervasive and that it has maybe 25, 30% linoleic acid. There are other oils which, with much more linoleic acid in them. Soybean oil, grapeseed, um, peanut probably has more, soybean has more. So canola oil, relatively speaking, has less linoleic acid, still way more than I would want to eat than many seed oils, but it's just pervasive. It's in everything now. And it's an environmental nightmare. It's oxidizing. And there's a great video on YouTube of how canola oil is made. Yeah, I've seen it. It's just, why would you eat this? Doesn't it's bleached, deodorized, de-waxed. You know, it's just, it's it's highly oxidized. And then when you dig into it, you can see the data on oxidation rates for canola oil, trans fats in these seed oils. So trans fats, everyone knows, are harmful for humans, probably because they do a couple of things at the level of clotting um, in humans. But th- there's a lot of sort of sinister marketing around trans fats. If there's less than 0.5 grams of trans fats per serving, you can say it's zero grams of trans fat per serving. But canola oil ends up being like 0.4 grams of trans fat per serving. So if you're having a few tablespoons of canola oil, you're getting a significant amount of trans fat. And most of the statistics I've seen suggest that oils like canola seed oils are three to 5% oxidized trans fats, which is pretty significant. That's way more than 0.5 grams per 14 grams in a serving, a tablespoon, but they're, they're just, they're fudging the numbers, kind of like the statin industry a little bit. So I want to close up with, I mean, we don't really need to close, but at some point we'll have to close. But the, the one thing that I want to talk about is sunlight and in relation to fearing our nature, uh, sun is one of those things. It seems to me like there's, there's many folks that I observe that are experiencing a, how do you call it? Heliophobia? Heliophobia, sure. Heliophobia to be scared of the sun. That's like a real thing. Like people, and I wonder, I'm not in that that disposition. So I wonder what that's like for a person that's inside the safety of their, you know, alternating, you know, flickering light, <laughs> blue lights inside the safety of the home and to go outside and be like, oh man, I really don't want that sun on my skin. That's, that's interesting. 
Like what, what is that? Is that correct? Maybe there's some, some value in that, that I'm, I'm not familiar with. My intuition says no. There goes your intuition again. My intuition. So this is, this is, I mean, think about this historically. Humans evolved at the equator. Yeah. 450,000 years ago, Homo sapiens from Homo erectus, Homo habilis, Homo habilis. Um, you know, previously Australopithecus, um, we've been in the sun our whole lives. Mm-hmm. This is why our genetic ancestors have dark skin and melanin, which protects them from the sun. We also know that when humans are in the sun, um, all sorts of good things happen. Blood pressure goes down. Nitric oxide helps dilate blood vessels. Nitric oxide is made in the skin when you are in the sun. This goes back to our previous conversation about tanning naked. Mm. Men out there may realize this, like it's pretty easy to get an erection when you're tanning naked. Mm, I just thought it was because it was naughty. <laughs> no, I think this might be, be a little bit of just naughtiness too. Maybe, though. but I think like you know? the same thing, like it's probably because of nitric oxide being made in the skin and this is blood vessel dilatation. This is natural Viagra. Not that Viagra is necessarily a good, good drug, but the way that Viagra works is by inhibiting, I think it's phosphodiesterase number like five, mm. which breaks down nitric oxide. So Viagra works by increasing nitric oxide throughout the body, but your penis just happens to benefit and you get more blood vessel dilatation. So the sun makes nitric oxide, which lowers your blood pressure, makes it easier to get an erection at that moment, et cetera. The sun also in your skin creates endorphins. These are compounds that feel good. And so this is a very clear pathway by which humans are reinforced to be in the sun. It feels good. Mostly every human listening to this and perhaps some of the canines or felines listening to this too, understand that if you've been inside all day, it feels good to go in the sun. If you live in a place that's cloudy for most of the winter or far from the equator, when the sun comes out, you're in the sun. I was just hanging out with my friends at Hardened Soil yesterday and the sun comes out. The whole crew at Hardened Soil is in the sun. We're just hanging out. It just feels good. Yeah, probably grounding too. Yeah, it's grounding. You're maybe- I'm saying you're probably- Yes, bare feet on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Another one of those- crazy ideas no, there's, there's quite a bit of there's, there's good research data around yeah, that as well yeah. in relation to inflammation and various yes. other things yeah. yeah overall quality of life improves with grounding but sun feels good yeah so how do we get to this narrative of sun being bad for us and i think that what we know is that too much sun can cause damage just like too much water can cause hyponatremia which is lowering of your blood sodium which can cause you to fall and get hurt so mm. there is a dose that is beneficial for sun and you can get too much i think most humans understand this. You're in the sun, you go out in the sun, it feels good. Depending on how strong the sun is and how long you're in the sun, eventually it starts to feel like your intuition, your spidey sense goes off and says, I've had enough. Yeah. Time to go inside. What an elegant system. <laughs> what an elegant system. You go oh, to Barton Springs and you think, I'm going to go over in the shade actually. I'm getting kind of hot. Yeah. In Costa Rica where I live, it happens really fast because I'm at the eighth latitude right you get you get tired you start feeling kind of anxious your skin gets sensitive like your body knows too much clever too much i've drunk i've had enough water i'm good on the sun i'm full i've had enough meat (laughs) (laughs) i'm done imagine this it's so freaking simple right but i think people um both men and women but especially women believe that the sun will age them and I, I think that in moderate doses, there's no good evidence that the sun is going to lead to photo aging or damage, but that's the, that's the thinking. Now in excess, could it lead to that? Yes. But I think that the piece of this equation that's been left out is what are the cells of your dermis and epidermis made of? Remember earlier we talked about the cell membranes and their fluidity and how if you eat more polyunsaturated fats, your cell membranes are full of more polyunsaturated fats. Yeah. So there's 
pretty good evidence that people who eat more seed oils have more cancer and especially more skin cancers like melanoma. Right. So even though melanoma is not exclusively, ex even though melanoma is not exclusively associated with the sun, people who eat more seed oils tend to have more melanoma. Again, this, you can't draw a causative inference here, but that's interesting. And you never hear that on Fox news yeah. or CNN. So, it makes sense to me and mechanistically, and there's other evidence to support this claim that when you eat more seed oils, your skin is full of seed oils and all of these trillions of front facing cells in your face, in your arms, on your chest, wherever you're exposing to the sun are full of seed oils. And those are polyunsaturated fatty acids that are fragile and more easily oxidized. Yeah. And so isn't it reasonable to think or hypothesize that if you eat more seed oils, you're going to burn more and you're going to age more quickly when you're in the sun. Sure. And certainly anecdotally, we see this supported over and over and over. If I post a tweet and I say, how many people out there or an Instagram post, how many people out there have found they burn less in the sun since they've gotten rid of seed oils? I'll get hundreds, if not thousands of people saying, I noticed that. I noticed that. This is crazy. Again, this is anecdote, but the N is thousands, yeah. right? Yeah. And so you have this interesting naturalistic case study of people saying, I got rid of seed oils. I burn less. Now, everyone has different levels at which they will burn. Everyone can make melanin at different amounts, depending on your history. But I think if you're fair skin, you're a very effective, efficient sun harvester. You can just go out in the sun for a much less amount of time, but you're getting endorphins, you're getting nitric oxide, you're getting beneficial things in the sun. And if you're eating a good diet, all of these front-facing cells in your skin, in your epidermis and your dermis are not necessarily getting fried by the sun because they have fatty acids that are more robust in them. And yeah. so this is what I believe is that photo aging is a combination of excess sun plus seed oils in the cell membranes. And that second part is, is what gets left out. And so women end up putting sunscreen on many of which contain phthalates, parabens, fragrances, and seed oils. And then you're baking that into your skin. And you're baking it into your skin. Which you're baking that into your bloodstream. Yeah. And we know that many of the compounds in these sunscreens end up in the poop and the pee, which means you're absorbing octobenzone, avabenzone, octocrylenes, which are associated with cancer and other reproductive harm and endocrine disruption. So we didn't talk about sunscreens, but the same sort of thing. So it's like, yeah. it just, yeah, it, it drives me a little nuts when I see women putting sunscreen on their face and you think, what's in that? Well, it seems like from what I've gathered, zinc oxide seems like an alrighty thing to do. Non-nano zinc oxide seems good, but what's the carrier for it? Mm. So this is the trouble. And we're, I'm building a company to make good animal-based sunscreens. Um, I think the best sunscreen is going to be a tallow-based sunscreen with non-nano zinc. Mm. But you don't want lavender in there because that's estrogenic, right? So it's very simple. Mm. And that's going to be what you want to do. But I used to put a sunscreen on my face that's a well-known healthy brand. And the base is sunflower oil. Mm, so there you are putting a sunscreen on your face that's a seed oil. And you know that putting a seed oil on your skin is going to lead to incorporation of those polyunsaturated fatty acids into your cell membranes. Yep. So now I actually do the opposite. I don't know. You may do this now. I put tallow on my skin. Mm. I put animal fat on my skin. Yeah. And it's actually a trend. It's like, it's like a TikTok trend. The TikTokers are all talking about tallow on the skin. It's like, I've been okay. doing this for a while. It makes a lot of sense. Coconut oil as well. Is, is, Coconut oil is good. Yeah. Yeah. I like, yeah. I like beef fat better. Yeah. Probably because of the vitamin E from the naturally occurring vitamin E in the beef fat. Yeah, I've always that's something that that I've always felt um, compelled to do is to eat my sunblock. Yeah, that's kind of something that I'm, I'm like if I if I do if I, if I got too much sun that day that night, 
I'm probably going to be drinking a lot of olive oil and a lot of fat and butter and stuff up. And let's talk about olive oil before we pass up. Yeah, before we sure. bring, yeah. yeah. But I would also don't put a sunscreen on your face that you wouldn't eat. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's same thing. Don't put anything in your mouth that you wouldn't eat. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah, don't put food in your mouth that you wouldn't eat. Don't put food food like sub, substances in your mouth that you wouldn't. Yeah. Eat. Don't put don't put that your methyl, higher self wouldn't eat. Don't put methyl cellulose. Yeah. Don't put methyl cellulose. Don't put rape seeds in your mouth. Yeah. I don't think that's a move. I don't think it's a good thing. So olive oil. Oh boy. Here we go, Saladino. Better than seed oils. <laughs> <laughs> You're not getting me off olive oil. But listen, I'm Greek. Better than seed oils. Better than seed oils. Lower linoleic acid than seed oils. Okay. Yeah, yeah, 15% <laughs> linoleic acid. Tallow, 2% linoleic acid, right? Yeah. The problem with olive oil is that 70% of it is oxidized and or adulterated with other oils. So 70% of olive oil is garbage yeah, well, and actually has seed oils adulterating it. So if yeah. you're not going to your freaking ancestors in Greece and getting olive oil pressed out of olives in the field or getting like a really good olive oil that you've seen the certificate of analysis for mm -hmm. analysis for in a dark bottle, in like a, a dark shaded, bottle. Shaded that's bottle, yeah. so I did this at Trader Joe's once you can see there's so many different pieces of the label of, of olive oil. It parallels things like milk, right? Is yeah. the milk raw? Is it a two, et cetera? Your, your olive oil. And I'll try and remember all of them. I don't eat olive oil because I just eat animal fats. I don't see a need for olive oil in my life because I, so I don't have any liquid oils. Olive oil. <laughs> I don't Come need on, it. Man. What if I say it like that? Olive oil. Olive oil with a little gesticulation with yeah, your hand. Little, you see <laughs> like, that? This is. That's nice. <laughs> There's, anyway, so <laughs> it has to be organic. It has to be single source, right? Because mixed sources are more likely to be contaminated. Yeah. You want it to be cold pressed. And there's even something else with olive oil that you want, like single source, organic, cold pressed olive oil in a dark glass bottle. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. There's not a lot of them like that. And I think most people who are doing olive oil are doing not that. So if you're going to yeah. do olive oil, do that. Mm -hmm. And what I'll say for next time is I do have concerns. There's actually some evidence. Obviously for you, this doesn't seem to be a problem. That high monounsaturated fatty acid oils could lead to obesity. At least in observational studies, and there's some. I need to do more research on this, so it's Dude, not. I drink so much olive oil. Why do you drink olive oil? I just love it. Why don't I'll, just I'll eat take tallow, I'll bro. Take, I will take down like a half liter of olive oil, not just like to the face, but I, I just drench my shit in olive oil. I'll try tallow or butter. I love butter. There you go. I, I have anything that's fat, I, like fat is flavor. I love it. I think if people are having trouble losing weight then I would do a trial without olive oil. Just do animal fats. Yeah, I'm open to experimentation. Yeah. You don't seem to have the issue, but maybe you'd be even more ripped and your cream master muscle would have worked Dude, better. Uh, so we're talking, all right, hold on. Last thing, something I wrote down. We're, we're never about, stopping. We're talking about wieners getting smaller. I wrote something down about dongs getting, uh, I think it's 20% increase in length since 1942 to 2021. So that a, a reduction in um, like sperm motility, uh -huh. and sperm count, all that stuff. But I think dongs are getting longer. I don't know. I've seen evidence they're getting I think smaller. We got a bunch of long, skinny, <laughs> endocrine disrupted dongs out there, bro. Maybe they're getting thinner, like the thinner and longer, dude. <laughs> the volumes, <laughs> the overall volume. This is this is eighth grade calculus now. You got to integrate the dick, bro. Yeah, dude. What is the overall dick volume? What's the coefficient of sperm motility? Right. Integrate the dick. Integrate. integrate the dick volume. Right. Who knows? All right, let's wrap this piece up. Wrap it up, bro. Thanks, dude. This was fun. Yeah, man, we covered a lot. Is there anything else? 
that should be said? No, I think we're good. That was thorough. Use your intuition. We're going to get a lot. We're going to rock some people's minds. <sighs> so you have uh, Heart and Soil? Yep. That's, uh, I, I, I love your guys' stuff. I so, appreciate the creation yeah. of that. It makes the consumption of uh, organs dramatically easier. Heart and Soil is desiccated organs, and we do grass-fed, grass-finished desiccated freeze-dried organs in glass bottles yeah and then we're working on a couple of other fun things so i've got some meat products coming out with organs and hopefully some skincare stuff without all the junk in it so stay tuned mm. and uh yeah carnivore md on the socials uh paul saladino md we re oh, rebranded re oh really yeah why? yeah why uh because i didn't want to be pigeonholed into carnivore md anymore uh, and oh, I'm that's good. just beginning to like work that. on a documentary. So we're going to make a, and by we, I just mean me and my team. So we're just now starting, I'm working with a studio out of LA and executive producer. We're just starting to film an anti-vegan doc, which is really, I should just say, we're doing a pro meat documentary. We're going to do documentary for Netflix to like anti-deprogram everybody mm. about how beneficial meat is in the diet and how many diets people can eat that include meat to reverse all this chronic disease. So that's in the works too. And as I'm promoting things like that, I just think, Carnivore MD, I'm never, I'm not listening to the, what this guy says. Like ultimately, I started as Paul Saladino MD. That's who I am. Let's go back there. It opens up a lot of freedom in terms of the content I make. Yeah. I can talk about honey and fruit and all the carnivore zealots. There's don't only get so, triggered. so much to say about eat animals. Like it's, I feel, I feel like there's so much more to the concept oh, yeah. of health yeah. and wellness and longevity. It's like if it's just animal based, it's like, okay, well, it's, it's pretty much you can wrap that up in a sentence be animal based. You know, and here's all the reasons why. Yeah. I think coming into a place of like health, longevity, joy, joie de vivre, like it's a lot more than just a thing. And I feel like you have such massive um, depth that goes so much beyond that. So I think it, to me, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So it's, it's Paul Saladino, MD on all the socials. Cool. Thank you, brother. Thank you, man. I appreciate uh, you. Appreciate this moment. Thank you all for tuning in. That's it. That's all. See you next week. Bye. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. Be sure to subscribe over on the Align Podcast YouTube channel to get each week's instructional videos on everything from joint mobility to strength training to self-care techniques, as well as sharing clips from this podcast. Appreciate you guys so much. Thank you for subscribing to this so you get each week's episodes. Thanks for joining you. I'll see you next week.